A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. If you haven't seen Darrow creep through the the palace, Severo's palace, turn around. Turn around, keep keep reading, and then come join us again. Raffo. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. This week, Cross and I both made abominations, <laughs> much like what we find in the book. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that, one, that one caught me entirely off guard because it did literally say in the notes, PJ Filler. <laughs> that was genius. <laughs> well done. Well done, my friend. And you're not I, wrong. <laughs> I didn't know what I was saying until halfway through that sentence. <laughs> Oh, man. So that worked out well. Yeah, very, very excited. So today is our ninth episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapters 51 through 58. But before we do that, let's talk about our abominations. What are you drinking, (laughs) PJ? Uh, So we got a suggestion from Cloud, Cloud X01 on our patron discord of doing a black and tan. And black and tan is traditionally um, an English pale ale and Guinness or uh, an English dry stout. We don't have either of those. Neither of us did in our fridges, but we had dark beer and light beer. So we just had to go with it. So I have a 2017 Surly Darkness, which, okay, so usually black and tans. It's a pale ale on bottom, stout on top. Uh, Surly Darkness is very, very heavy. Um, it's a Russian Imperial Stout. So pretty, pretty dense. So that's on bottom. And on top is Lining Kugel's original. <laughs> 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 Fucking Linings and Darkness. <laughs> oh my god. Honestly, it doesn't work that, like, it's not that bad. It, it's kind of like a, at least the first sips, because it's mostly lineys on top, with just almost like a hint of chocolate coming through. Okay. So it, it kind of works, um, but we'll see how it progresses through on, throughout. I'm, I'm guessing it's mostly just going to take taste like a watered-down darkness, but... Interesting. A-okay. What do you have? So I, today, am... So you have a tan in black. I just have a black on accident, um, <laughs> which which is because uh, I had done the black and tan, and I had planned for it, and then I thought about the density of the alcohols after the fact that I had poured, and then I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, it's just mixed. Fuck. Even though I did the spoon thing, I did, the, I did everything, but I didn't think about the alcohols the same way you did, so mine is just a straight-up mix of these two beers. I am having um, double dog... IPA, which is a 10% double IPA, which is fucking gnarly, with dragon's milk. <laughs> for like a, so my I, my double IPA for my pale ale, which is, you know, pale, it's the IPA is a India pale ale, right? That counts. 
it's that counts. this is more of an amber if we're if we're being honest looking at the coloring <laughs> um, and dragon's milk is a chocolate caramel stout that's widely available so my goal was to make something that Wait, like people could replicate easily to experience this did you do did you do a dragon's milk variant the barrel aged yeah i mean it's always barrel aged but did you do like the the salted caramel version of it? No, or no, no, no. This tastes caramely. I should have said because of the mix. Oh, okay, gotcha, it is not. Gotcha. It is not on. It is not caramel on average. I I was my brain was connecting what I was tasting right now. Uh, generally, just a very very thick stout. Yeah. But it tastes caramely. Like like I was saying, like because of the amber mixture, it drinks kind of like caramel and chocolate all the way through. It's kind of dangerous because it's really easy to drink. In Dragon's Milk, you generally like good? need to nurse a little bit. Like it's it's better than I expected. <laughs> like I would give this at least at least a seven. All right, for like crazy shit that I pulled out of my fridge. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's fun. Are you? You're not following this up with anything, right? We're both just having our uh, two I'm just black continue drinking the. Yeah. I'm just going to continue drinking the uh, darkness. Yeah, that's pretty much what I figured. So we both got either two black and tans or you've got some leftover darkness because technically speaking it's split between the two bottles of beer so you know this is this is it so with that we are going to move into last week's predictions pj uh so the question was is victor alive and i said yes there's no way she's not double protected from the escape pod getting shot down and uh yeah she's alive they didn't really go into how the escape pod survive the crash landing but pj is protected enough to do so the the answer here is that victra don't give a shit she gonna be fine <laughs> i mean yeah yeah she gonna be fine no truly she uh like badass we've got a lot to talk about in the little section with lyria here to round out last week so yeah mm-hmm. uh so i drink for that yep <laughs> what was that noise was mumbling devilish gibberish at you yeah well cursing i don't you appreciate it for all time well too bad we'll, we'll get into the horrific the monsters later baba yaga <laughs> looking with that <laughs> let's get into the <laughs> chapters <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this is the harshest cut i've ever delivered so chapter 51 lyria jade witch after collecting Fig's eyes for a bounty for Quicksilver, Volga, and Lyria turn and run into Victra. At gunpoint, Victra explains the room was Electra's. The room that uh, Volga and Lyria were, were trapped in were actually Electra's playrooms, which is fucking absurd and amazing. She's also very curious about who was with Figment when she died. What do you think Fig- Victra knows about Figment and in turn... What do you think about like her choice of putting them in the playrooms? Um, so first of all, I was under the assumption that Volga was taking the eyes because of the contacts that like changed colors and they're probably expensive. (laughs) I was, and she, she kept searching for things and had to be kind of pulled away. Um, when she realized there was nothing left to grab. So I assume the squid itself is the bounty. That was my assumption. Similarly with Victra, I think she's entirely aware of what Fig is or was or however you want to say it. <laughs> knows knows exactly what happened to Lyria. And we get some further hints with that later on when 
Victor mentions that she knew that Lyria would be able to follow the tracks. Yeah, and and Lyria initially kind of attributes that to her mind sight, right? Like she being so used to kind of darkness in the mines, she's not shocked that she can see well at night, but she's a little bit there there's some there's definitely something going on with Lyria inside of her head. It might have something to do with a squid squid boy. Squiddy boy is uh he's in there. <clears throat> What'd you make of the playroom commentary? Ooh. That was fun. <laughs> that was kind of fun. The fact that Electra stayed in there for 13 days <laughs> straight just to solve the puzzle. And also the fact that like Victor was so dismissive of how average that was. <laughs> you know, that's that's very true. I, I think it's also it's interesting because it's indicative of like Electra's intelligence that maybe we haven't given her a whole lot of credit for up until certain points. You know, like she seemed as though she was the sort of brutal child, the aggressive child. And I, she still is that. Yeah. No, I'm she not. She can be both. Yeah. Right. Exactly. She can be both is totally where my brain was going with this. I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 The playrooms <laughs> are, are a great little touch there being like, I expected you to figure it out because <laughs> you guys are a part of Ephraim squad, right? Like you guys should have done that a while ago. How long do we know how long they were in there? For? I don't recall the specifics. I don't know that we get specifics. I'm sure that okay. someone has mapped it out from the like timelines that exist, but I'm not sure that we are provided uh, date and details straight up from the text, if that makes sense. Probably longer than 13 days. Probably. Definitely longer than 13 days. I mean, the the whole like them being floating in these rooms with the toilets and everything else, like tearing off their like pieces of cloth and writing notes, letters to each other over days with like bloody in fingernails. Blood. Yeah, it's just <laughs> on top of it being a playroom is just like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you morons. We love you. But uh. so Lyria is understandably very angry with Victra and gets into an argument with Volga over what to do about her. I, I think what hurts me most here is that Lyria is kind of reverted to this jaded creature that we knew her as back in the beginning of Iron Gold after, you know, kind of forsaking her father and kind of blaming her brothers for leaving and, and things of that nature. Most obviously from the events of Iron Gold with Ephraim and Philippe's kind of meddling with her and her personality or her belief okay. in others, not personality, but like her ability to believe in people. So I, I don't think it necessarily hurts me that much. I saw it more as her still have, she still has a temper and she's still impulsive, but she has learned how to cope with that and learned how to sort of temper it a little bit. And this situation with Victor just kind of pushed her over the edge a little bit, pushed her over the threshold of control, if you will. That's fair. And I, I think that also makes sense. She's just, she's also throughout this section and kind of throughout a little bit of the last section, she spent some time questioning questioning Volga and like her horror sort of loyalty to Volga as well. And we get from, um, from Lyria's perspective. And we obviously understand Volga from Ephraim's perspective. Like she is a very loyal creature, not going to turn on someone for, you know, no reason. We, mm-hmm. we, we see at the very least that Lyria responds positively to some of those interactions a little bit later, but it does still kind of like, for me, it rubs a sore spot. It's like it's like touching a bruise and knowing that it'll cause pain kind of a thing with the way that mm-hmm. she treats Volga. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think she's kind of a caged animal at this point. I don't think we can really take what's happening in this situation at face value for who 
Lyria is at her core. I think she's she's in pretty extreme circumstances. Fair point. Extreme is, I think, underselling it. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. A, she's a, she's got a random squid in her brain that was talking to her, that was previously reciting poetry out loud. There's a lot that's going yeah. on. Yeah, there is Staffing definitely a lot. poetry. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, before we move on to the next question, I just have to say, as far as this beer goes, I have gotten into the like fully dark part of it. It is not as good. <laughs> oh, womp womp. Need to grab another like, it's wine. Just, it's just it's just worse darkness. Mm. So I don't know. I could dilute it, could add darkness to it, but I think I'm just gonna finish it and just enjoy a darkness afterwards. Oh cripes. Pace yourself well. Don't kill us here. I this will. episode I is a lot. <laughs> this is a lot. This is definitely a lot. Alright, so uh, of course, going into the next one, realizing the danger of the red hand, she does kind of in about Lyria does an about face and runs back to our pair of V named characters and brings about the news, by the way, but brings about the news, of course, about the red hand. I, I like that they kind of both take off running and that Victra expresses a lot of her usual flair about being able to run incredibly well while she's pregnant. You know, it's like her her normal like brag <laughs> about how she can run. And she literally says it would be rude to brag. Which is her also bragging. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Which is hilarious. Yep. But how how does she compare to other golds with running? Is that established? Um, I don't know that it's fully established. She's described back in Golden Sun as like live and fast. And that's kind of the way their razor style is described. Uh, on the bridge of Morningstar, there's kind of similar moments where she's outpacing. And she says, bye, Felicia, and then carves the woman in half, right? Oh, yeah. You, you know, there are a number of those moments where she's just faster than other people. So it, it's not as though she is Quinn, right, who is the fastest of the Institute that Darrow was in. But she's definitely not slow. Okay. So. Yeah. And pregnant. Pregnant. Yeah. Overdue. Remember, overdue. <laughs> Yeah. But I Oof. but I think the most important part of this section is kind of Lyria's personal villain finally is given a name. The one from the beginning of Iron Gold that we knew of immediately from the scar on her face, the leader of the Red Hand, the Bad Seed of Ares, is here. And Lyria certainly wants to knock Harmony right off of her block. Boy... Howdy, did I want Volga to take that shot? I really wanted her to shoot that, what, kilometer and a half? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted her to take that shot as well. But you can understand from Victra's kind of knowledge of the situation and everything else that it was it was the right call. But, man, you just want to put that freaking woman in her grave, like, right now for all the harm that yeah. she's caused everyone over time. Like, she fucked up. Keep in mind, not only is Harmony, like, really messed up Lyria's life, but I still lean back on something that we haven't talked about in a long time. That character, of course, is Roke. She kind of led to the fuck up with Roke, in a way. It was Darrow's fault in the end, don't get me wrong, but, like, because he had to drug him, that immediately led to suspicion and caused him to, like, keep him out of the dark and having to lie to a friend and everything else, and it... Yeah, she's the true big bad. Seriously, at the very least, a moral big bad. Take her down. Yeah. Please, Volga. Do it. Somebody. Anybody. Get her. Get her. Get her. <laughs> Sick him. Sick him. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the Lyria chapter for this week? This is the last we see of Lyria. Uh, forever. <laughs> nope. That's it. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. So we move into also our only Ephraim chapter of the week. Pale Rain. 
I love the little intro that we get here in the snow. The aforementioned pale rain is the title of the chapter partially refers to it. I think, you know, he's kind of talking about the way that it's different and the vehicles interrupting the tracks and the moment with the red and teaching the little thief and teaching him how to pickpocket and kind of the the funny moments that happen there. But the other Mm -hmm. rain, the real pale rain, of course, is that of the bodies from the sky of the Pandora. What a way to open up this chapter and the results of last week to Ephraim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's fucking brutal. (laughs) 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 And like everybody's stopping and watching the HC and they're just letting thieves go. Like everybody's just flocking to these, uh, to these screens to see what's going on. And the fact that the Pandora fell is just absurd. Just insane. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's not explicitly stated that the Pandora is lost completely. It's that the evacuation protocol was made real, you know, like the the protocol that Victor had discussed, which is evacuating everyone out. And like, I, I think this has even been mentioned all the way back in like Morningstar ship protocols were generally made in such a way where you would just eject everyone if there was a rebellion on ship or if there were boards, you just pull it open because you could kill the low colors at a low cost to right. the society. You could run it with a minimum. You could run a ship or drive a ship home with a minimal crew. So that's, I mean, that's the entire way that Darrow gained so much support. Yeah. And golden, the fact Sun. that he, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. That he didn't purge the, uh, the packs. Yeah, exactly. So there are all of these different moments. And so, again, seeing that kind of call back to this familiar thing is, I I think, important at the very least. But I the critical move on Volsung Fa's part here is actually gathering the bodies and dropping them from ships that appear to have been the same stolen ships that liberated Crimea. Crimea? Crimea? Some, whatever. Cimmeria? Whatever it's called. Samaria. Samaria. Yeah, that's how right. I would say it. Regardless, that that whole strategy of his is is genius. You know, before the real eject of the ship happens, he flies these ships over and kind of in combination makes it look like the bodies that are being ejected from the ship are dropping in addition to the ones that are being dropped from these four cruisers as they drive over the city. Mm-hmm. Unfortunate. Yeah, that's that's a way to put it. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's just he's just showing himself to have such a deeper intelligence than like the brutal mechanism of violence and war that we had the perception of him last week. You know, he was a warrior more than anything else, not necessarily a schemer, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's showing that he's Um, also a schemer. Yeah, uh, F calls him trained or he says he's like clearly trained in destabilizing regimes, Mm -hmm. which how how would he go about being trained in that? That seems like a weird thing for somebody to train him in <laughs> being like isolated and secret for centuries. I don't know. But yeah, is there is there somewhere is there like a completely separate civilization that could be easily accessed? I don't think so. I feel like we would have heard about it. So these are just people that have been or people or things that have been floating around in, in deep space. Where would that sort of training come yeah, from? Yeah, they've been floating around in the Coupier belt, right? Is kind of their, like, story that they're sticking to, if that makes sense. That's sort of the story yeah. of the Ascomani. So, yeah, the question is, is, like, where does this sort of... This does seem like a far more intelligent move, you know? Yeah. Yeah, where... I don't know. 
That's my biggest question is where is all this intelligence actually coming from? It's the aliens, PJ. <laughs> we're, we're adding aliens into the story. Just you wait. Yep. Well, I mean, we're, we're adding something into the story, whatever the fuck is inside Illyria. <laughs> like, there's a, there's a lot of shit coming into this story right now. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the way that this, this series expanded things, right, like a couple of big concepts that we got were the Yaskamani post the Dark Revolt. We have the Mind's Eye. We've got uh, the entirety of the Figment. Yeah, there's a lot here that's being kind of added that I think is fantastic. It's all very sci-fi and and interesting and kind of drives the story forward in a unique way. And then we get a whole conversation here about nature versus nurture for the rest of the episode that we're going to talk about a lot. Right. <laughs> yep. But regardless, trained in destabilizing regimes. Totally. So Ephraim makes the decision that despite all the other chaos, that this is the time to free the children and take off in the snowball. But something pops from his chest when he's doing so after he takes out Good Keen and a couple of the other guards doesn't fully take out, just paralyzes. Of course, he's not killing them. And then Electra, after they make it onto the snowball with the harnesses and the balloons and basically the Batman plan from <laughs> is it, it? It's it's the Dark Knight, right? Like it's literally the Batman plan. <laughs> I'm not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's a good plan. It's a great plan. <laughs> so the, the Batman plan succeeds and they all pick up, but there's a combination of the uh, tracker that was ripped out via the magnet in the back of that uh, on their backs that was in his calf. And then there's also the heart spike that was in his heart. So there's definitely a couple of great things that are kind of revealed here. But I don't know about you, but I'd be very scared if a 10 year old was cracking open my rib cage for any fucking reason. <laughs> All right. Honestly, child or not, I'd be pretty disturbed if anybody was cracking into my rib cage unless mm -hmm. they're like an actual surgeon Fair ready point. to do so and prepared for it. Like, uh, and to... The fact that he was awake for the entire fucking thing. I know. <laughs> like, fucking hilarious. And their their conversations afterwards. I don't know. You'll probably get into that if you have. I don't know if you have questions about it. I can't remember. Um, I love it all. But Mention it anyway. Yeah. She. Electra is like super snarky about it. Kind of like you were <laughs> awake for the whole thing. Like that's fucking metal or whatever she says. <laughs> Yeah, she's like that was that was enough to like put down an obsidian. Like <laughs> he should have been toast, dude. He's like, I'm a drug addict. It's <laughs> a response. <laughs> just, I think he just says the word addict. Yeah, right. He's like, I'm, he I'm just an says addict. addict. But this this opens up a lot of conversation and rapport with Electra. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that he was able to just kind of fucking take it really makes him it. It makes her. I don't know about admire, but respect him a little bit. I I really like. The whole dialogue that happens here with the children, I think that that's huge to me uh, because I think that it, it is like very funny and very real between the group of them. I mean, you've got two 10 year olds and like an old dude, right? But, like comparatively <laughs> an old dude um, who's like helping them out and has broken them out twice. Like he's broken them out twice of different awful situations. Um. Three times? A th well, well, broken him out. Kidnapped him three times. Yeah, kid I guess, yes. If you call them all kidnappings, <laughs> I would say this last one is a rescue, and the second one was probably a rescue, but kind of a kid... Like, he's kind of holding them and then got shot down. So, it, it's an interesting thing. Regardless, he has, at, as a 47-year-old, 
we'll call it kidnapped. He's kidnapped these kids three times. <laughs> like <laughs> they're kind of getting abducted. good at this as a group. <laughs> yeah, abducted. I think. I think. What is Mustang just says again <laughs> later on when she learns that? Yeah. yeah, it's so it's so good, so funny, and I I think like fantastically done. Um, from from all kinds of perspectives, but I, I really like you were saying. I love Electra's dialogue that happens here, and sort of the way that they converse about I don't like about the surgery, and then against each other when they're like arguing and they like call each other fucking names. Like all of it is just fantastic. The fact and that Hatchet Face actually gets to her. Oh yeah, is hilarious. Yeah, that means that she knows. Like the family knows. Like she must have inherited the Hatchet Face of uh, of Fitchner. You know. <laughs> she must be the one and, and the rest got the uh julii looks yeah yep. mm. <laughs> the the little moment that follows kind of the the chest popping moment with the heart spike and everything else is one to me that kind of hits a little bit harder than i thought it would on reread so the life that would never be in the snowball is one that kind of tears at me a little bit Ephraim doesn't think that it's likely that it'll make it to a point where he'll see Volga on the ship ever, right? He's never going to see her on the snowball, which he named after her, which he's clearly doing all of this in part for her and in part for the kids as he's certain that she's died in the pale rain. I think this is interesting with when compared with his reflection on Pax just a little bit later. I admire the change in him, even as I feel it's a loss to the world that he's no longer a boy. The world has enough men, but maybe he can be a different kind of man. Probably not, but maybe is enough. And I think it at the same time in his thoughts at the end or near the end of Iron Gold, he was kind of registering a similar thought about Volga, where it's like, I can't wait for her to be free of this burden of like needing to be a part of a thief crew and like this, this sort of neglect and regret that was hanging over his head that he was putting her into all these pressured situations and then you know the the end of the story happens where he of course is recruited but you know they they seem to mirror each other well and hmm hmm yeah they Lots definitely do and similarly volga seemed to be the only person that he had really gotten close to since trig until pax mm-hmm. he and pax have kind of had this pretty unique budding friendship and relationship and whatever however you want to call it Stockholm I don't know if friendship is the right term, it, but it's not. It's not. It's not. Obviously, he's not really like, the. Yeah, he's not yeah, really he's the not captor. Their captor. He's their captor, but not not in a malicious way. Yeah, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of complexity there, but Pax seems to be the only person since, um, or Volga was the only person since Trig that he seemed to really connect with, and Pax is on the same path which is really kind of cool to see. Yeah. It's also great versus the reflection of like Lorne that happened back in Golden Sun, right? When he was reflecting on Darrow and he's like, you know, I I hope that he doesn't have to be a a man like me. Like you should aspire to be not like me. This feels like a very similar moment where it's like, maybe he can be a different kind of man. And I Mm -hmm. really appreciate that as a reflection. And it kind of shows diverging paths, but similar results of war on these folk psyches in a way Lorne and Ephraim kind of parallel each other in these moments where they're reflecting on the sort of brutality of their lives and how they don't wish that on other people and I think that that's a, right. a great comparison between the two characters yeah 
Yeah, they're they're not crazy similar. A, Don't get me an, wrong, but no, no, but that's a fun thing to think about. I'll have to do a little bit more pondering on that. I'd probably have to look more into Lorne and direct passages and see see how they compare. But that seems like a really cool comparison. On kind of FRM for the week, the the final dialogue with the children, I kind of made mention of it earlier, where they're insulting each other and you made the hatchet face comment, really to me felt like kids being kids, which was great for the two of these after this kind of conversation about maturity. But the profanity that's thrown between the two of them inside of the vernacular of the, the Republic feels like an elementary school bus right like you you've got like this this sort of energy i i just love it it's so good oh god i mean now that pack smokes burners he's cool now okay like you gotta just accept it <laughs> pax does smoke burners jesus i mean just like one or two but <laughs> oh man Oh, so so, so good. good i'm so glad we got to spend so much time laughing because it's about to become real serious <laughs> for a while mm, no i i don't know what you're talking about this is a very whimsical show we are just talking about happy moments there's nothing heavy here and uh that's where we'll see you next week guys <laughs> see you next tuesday so uh, thursday <laughs> sorry whoops um <laughs> with that chapter 53 virginia pandemonium I just want to start off this chapter. Obviously, there's some obvious things that are important and that you've come to realize. But just as a casual reminder for anyone listening, don't count the bodies before they're beheaded (laughs) in Pierce Brown's writing unless they die in front of you. If you don't see them die on the page, they're still alive (laughs) pretty much every single time. (laughs) I can't I can't think of one instance I think I can think of one instance. I can't remember. I talked to you about this. But reminder, don't count the bodies until they're beheaded. (laughs) Or smushed by an obelisk. Oh my god. (laughs) You (laughs) went there. (laughs) You just dropped that on me like an obelisk. (laughs) I really love... (laughs) I can't even... I'm going to take a sip. I love Virginia's point of view. To your point, I'm really glad she didn't die um, because I think that her character is one of my favorites to listen to and read instead of the story. She is so smart and so internal and so reflective, and it's fantastic. Like, I truly like her and Darrow, favorite points of view from a writing perspective, not necessarily entirely. I do, there isn't. Um, I do have a question, though. Yeah. Just kind of before we divert too much into actual question territory, what was going through your mind the entire time when I was like adamant that she wasn't dead? Well, I knew that she wasn't dead, dude. So I, I know, was like, but like, was, was like, there anything like, were you trying to trick me? No, I was just trying to like, I was playing into like the whole concept of all of the people talking about the fact that she was dead. Right. So it was like, I can't diverge from what the story's saying too much. That's like, that's yeah. my thing to do instead of the podcast. I try to bring in, that's fair. you know, like my, my goal is to like kind of be the narrator and like have you have sort of big ideas and then we can play off of each other with the big ideas. Like that's kind of the move. And I can bring some of those and like softball pitch them so that we can have big conversations about it. But in general, my goal is to not ruin the story for you and to just recant enough so that you can have thoughts in addition and i can kind of lend my thoughts to your thoughts 
So gotcha. that's where I was at. I like was totally with you because I didn't believe that Virginia was dead when that happened. I did believe that Daxo was dead. I believe that a lot of shit was fucked. And it's not until here, two weeks later, <laughs> like almost 100 yeah. pages later, actually a little bit over 100 pages later, where we re- return to her perspective and shit is fucked way worse than just Daxo getting his head cut off and spine thrown yeah. around like a volleyball like oh it's pretty pretty fucked i think i conceded at one point during one of the <laughs> during one of the episodes i'm like fine whatever she's dead <laughs> i think i think you did for a moment <laughs> you're yeah. just like yeah okay fine <laughs> i don't want to, i don't want to imagine this question it doesn't work but yeah <laughs> i uh i feel you there anyway sorry sorry to derail that no i i derailed it to begin with so i i enjoy the little story that we kick off this return with one of which i think kind of reflects on a brutal lesson that nero taught her and i think fits also with the theme of this entire section which is going to be about childhood parentage and sort of responsibility for for a majority of it but Nero says self-pity is a plebeian's luxury. All that occurs is either endurable or unendurable. If it is endurable, endure it. If it is unendurable, follow your mother. And wow, what a cruel note that is from so a father. First of all, this feels like a little bit of a disconnect from from what we've been told about Nero, I think in Golden Sun, when Virginia tells this story. And how to his dying day, Nero was adamant that she fell and never admitted otherwise. Well, I think that this is interesting. Oh, 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 I'm misreading this entirely. No, yeah. I, uh, but I think I think what you just brought up is incredible because it lends so much strength to this argument that he is not owning up to it. Right. But he kind of is yeah. if you can read between the lines and see it. Yeah, he he was adamant that she fell accidentally, right? Yes. Yeah. That it was an accident. So he's adamant of that. And then this quote is here. Yes. That's interesting. Um, And I don't know if it's an oversight or if it's... I don't think it's an oversight. I think that it's he's smart enough to realize that Virginia knows and so says it in a subtextual way, right? Where he's bringing it up because he knows that she understands. It feels a little more than subtextual. Well, that feels so direct. But but not to everyone else, right? Like, if he stood by this story with everyone else, he's being direct with but his she, kid of whom he knows knows. You know what I mean? But like, she, he, she says he was always direct with, or always, like, with, with her. She He never admitted it to her. This subtext is so real to me. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, yep, I didn't say the thing, but you can read between the lines because you're smart enough to read between the lines and figure out what I mean. And mm-hmm. I think that's the difference between like admitted and confessed, you know, like, or like, okay, kind of I, confessed. Maybe isn't the right word. Confessed is actually stronger than admitted hinted at like this. He's, he's playing at something that he assumes that she knows. Okay. So, yeah, I'm just not convinced that this was an intentional breadcrumb. I feel like it was more just kind of a an oversight because it seems too too clear okay. to be uh because if if he had said that to Virginia, I don't feel like she would have held on to the fact that he had never admitted it to her. The the other part of this is that there is a little bit of ambiguity about follow your mother, right? Like it it's not saying there's that not. it's no, there's well, really not. All, all that I'm also I all that I'm also adding to this, right, is 
there's the other interpretation that could exist of this, which is that follow your mother because she fell off of a cliff. Like, go jump off a cliff yourself. Fall off of a cliff. That's that's too. It's very direct. But Nero know. has always been a dick. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I just for whatever reason I feel like it was a little bit of an of an oversight. But sure. I won't necessarily hold on to that too. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely get it. But I think that it obviously like brings up a a larger conversation throughout this story and in the trilogy previous and the trilogy that we're in about parentage and the impact that it has on our characters. We, we've got kind of Lysander that's reflecting on Octavia and unable to remember anything really before her. We've got Virginia thinking about Nero and the obvious implications that is Abomin Adrius that's coming at us in a minute here and Adrius before that. And we've got Pax dealing and reflecting on Darrow and Darrow reflecting on Pax and and Mustang reflecting on Pax. Like there's there's a lot of and Severo and there's there's so much here that relates to parents and their children and sort of the impacts of their relationships against each other and the choices that they make for the jobs that they have to occupy and what they have to do to um, kind of fill their position in society. They've they've got a huge role as far as parents are inside of the narrative. How do you think this will or kind of has ended up manifesting in kind of each of our characters in their own way? I I mean, I think I think you said it yourself that parentage is kind of a theme. Everything, everything about it. It, it touches every aspect of a lot of our characters lives and influences basically everything that they do. I think we can start seeing some more explicit lessons learned. Um, like we do with Mustang, recalling conversations with Nero and applying him. As far as manifesting goes, I, I think I think it's already rooted in there, and I think it's it's already basically a core aspect of a lot of these characters. Yeah, I I would agree. I I think that it always has been a core aspect of of a lot of these characters since the beginning of the series. It's just kind of coming to roost now in a, a larger way as they've started to reflect, and we've gathered. It's this stone gathering momentum as it rolls down the hill, right? Like we're starting to see some of this manifest very directly in in decisions and in the way that they they react to things. So that's why I bring it up here, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So the stone's rolling downhill. It's only going to only going to roll more from here. Obviously, the end of this chapter, we've got a, a thing with Darrow that's big with family. So we'll definitely arrive there. But as we linger within Virginia's perspective, we find that she's trapped in a device of Octavia's design, in the device of Octavia's design, one that she understands, that of the pandemonium chair, and is being toyed with for information in an attempt to glean any secrets that she might be hiding. She also is being interacted with with psycho spikes, which are something that she pulled out of the pandemonium chair herself, something that she designed after studying the pandemonium chair. I ask the same question that she asks while floating in the void. What does Lilith want to know from her? So is she in both? She's in the pandemonium chair as well as the psycho. She's got a psycho spike plugged into her the moment that she wakes up. So she's already it's already there. So. The assumption right. that we get from earlier is that the psycho spike is a derived version of the technology of the pandemonium chair. Right. So chances are yeah. that maybe Lilath didn't know which was better even, you know, okay. if we think about it that yeah, way. Yeah, I, I under, my, my assumption was that she just had one of the psycho spikes and wasn't also in the chair, but. No, she's in totally the chair because she's way. sitting up. Right. She's quadriplegic at the beginning of this. As far as what. Lilith is searching for. Uh, I've got a couple answers. 
one, I guess, um, how to effectively use this technology and harness its strength. Like clearly they have a little bit of base knowledge of how to, how to use the psycho spike or the chair or whatever and manipulate people, but really getting into the core of how to use it. Number two would be some sort of information that Mustang knows because of her time spent with Octavia. And the third option is that it's just a little bit of torture. It's just kind of fun. And whatever, whatever they happen to get from her. Sure. Great. Awesome. I don't think that's the actual answer. My assumption is, is number two, something specific that Octavia knew about and Mustang knew because of proximity and, uh, has been lost. Okay. That's what I'm I, I think that makes a decent amount of sense. I, I think that especially your perspective on her thinking that torture could just be an object here makes a lot of sense because that was an objective of the jackal's box, right? And in a similar way, this isn't the same as the box because obviously it's not going on for as long. You know, she doesn't know how much time has passed, sure, but it's not to the point where she's lethargic and, you know, destroyed by because her muscles have decomposed in the same kind of way. But it right. is... Definitely of a similar mindset, a similar approach. And I think that kind of gets into the conversation that happens a little bit later with Abominadrius, which is that more than anything else, Lilith makes a great blunt instrument. She's a, a weapon of violence um, and she's she's excellent as a soldier, but she's not much more. And so she she might be copying or playing from that playbook or just executing the operations of Adrius. This is clone. <laughs> yeah. but yeah it's it's all kind of a, a larger question so good to hear though i i think that there's a lot there that we don't quite have answers to yet we've got a couple of ideas that she was digging around in her brain that there's potential for things but i don't think we have a firm answer yet mm-hmm. that makes so sense. she finally wakes from her personal void in the center of moon hall with the psycho spike still implanted preventing her from moving or doing so much as vocalizing more than a guttural mooing sound Oh, man, I can't help but read clever girl in an Aussie accent a little bit later when she kind of responds to some of the treatments that she's getting in terms of the sort of like dopamine rush um, and everything like that. You know, it just reminds me of the first part. Clever girl reminds me of Jurassic Park. And the second part, of course, is just her being drugged up to smile in front of cameras and look like the psychopath. And oh, boy, definitely manipulating emotions. But after assessing herself and figuring out her limits, including but not limited to stating her high standards for her own sexual pleasure, we arrive at the action. Publius and others are here to execute the Republic conspirators with an obelisk memorial from the Rising. Virginia goes so far as to actually remark on the perversion of the symbol to be used as a tool for execution and the way that it was altered. Um. Yeah, you, you just gave me a lot to mull over there. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. I, I You know, um, there's just so much that fucking happens in Virginia's chapters so this much, week that, like, so big summaries are it's necessary. So <laughs> yeah, it's so dense. The reduced ability to vocalize and um, I thought the, the way they described it, sort of the inversion of feeling, like, instead of feeling pain, just intense orgasmic pleasure is fucked up is absolutely ridiculous um and i think i think mustang points to it as a an application that she hadn't even considered am i am i wrong in that i think she says that yes the feelings yep yep. that was not something that she had considered like fucking with heads like that yeah so like intense pain just feels like orgasmic pleasure so she's like smiling at at horror 
horrible things that she's seen. Mm-hmm. But uh, these executions are heavy, man. As heavy as the obelisk. <laughs> I, I can't believe you okay? fucking I said that. To. I as have heavy, to laugh at it. As heavy as the obelisk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But beyond just using that symbol, they also defaced Darrow's statue facing him the opposite direction he's traditionally and ritualistically facing north and they face him south and they move the statue of eo into like the most prominent position i assume signifying another sort of rebellion rising like they're they're rallying around her again and kind of pointing to the leaders of the of the republic as the oppressors that eo would have been fighting against is that is that the right way to interpret um Yes, I think so. So to reiterate, just to make sure that I'm following properly, uh, you're saying that like Darrow is obviously facing south because he's got the so Eo is being held up specifically because she is kind of the song of the Vox, right? She is right. the the sort of spirit animal of, of what's going on here. I can't believe I fucking said that. But she she is sort of the source of a, like a lot of the thoughts that are going on here. And Darrow is made out to be kind of this executioner, right? And so he is yeah. he is the bottom. The Reaper is the bottom, and he is being used as the scythe now. When she is the like uplifting part, versus right. Darrow's ideals being something to strive for when he was up at the top, and Eo being sort of the beginning so it's like a beginning to end kind of story before and now it's more of a perversion and an inversion of the meaning yeah 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 exactly just making sure i'm not or not even necessarily a perversion of it but a interpretation it's a perversion from darrow's perspective right like yeah it's it's applying the same meaning but Kind of attributing attributing the current leadership as those who were oppressing everybody, which is not genuine. But I don't think I I, I don't know if perversion is the right word for it. It's more similar to the red hand than, you know, the Republic is. So I, I think that's where I think that it's kind of a perversion, right, where it's like they wanted everyone to stand in solidarity. And so they're taking a, a fake an operations Northwood style event and turning it into we talked about conspiracies last week <laughs> oh oh did we oh um, did we just bring up operation northwoods we're not gonna talk about it for long but to bring up like a false flag event right and so like they created their own false flag event to give themselves weight so i don't know i think it's a perversion because of that yeah that makes sense that's fair so, totally fair i'm with oof. you so yep uh it said that so can't retract that fully Anyway, with a <laughs> mighty thump, Theodora dies. Virginia's questions that go unsaid are, of oh, course, squish. heartbreaking. Yeah, big squish. <laughs> it sucks so bad, man. And, and it's both like she and Darrow lose this close friend who's been with us all the way since back in the beginning of Golden Sun. This, horrible. this death just stings me man like she doesn't go out with so much as like a triumphant roar of like fighting it like we don't hear any of what's going on she's just crushed she's toast she's fought against all this as virginia reflects and she's she's overcame insurmountable odds she's been treated like shit and she's fought against it and she's removed a lot of those people from power and she's fought all these things 
and just to be destroyed by this fucking embarrassing sack of dog shit that eats brains later. Oh, I have such <laughs> harsh feelings about Publius. By the way, yeah. I've had the hardest time not being a piece of shit towards Publius this whole time that we've been talking about him because I hate him after this moment. Like, there is no... We were talking about him for so long inside of Iron Gold. This is like, you were like, oh, like, he can't do anything wrong. And I was like, you're so wrong. <laughs> He's the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think I, oh. I think later on in the notes I start using this term. But um, if we want to just start calling him pubes, we can. Is that better? Does that help? It makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> you can call him pubes. Yeah. But the, yeah. the death of Theodora stings me greatly, and shortly thereafter, we also lose Servilla Arcos, the mother of Alexander, one of the daughters Arcos, as they're referred back in Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Not, not a daughter of, but married in. They're the widows of all the sons right. that were lost, so... Yeah, yeah, we... God, God, these executions are just horrifying. But it, it it evokes, obviously, sort of mental images of a guillotine without it being a guillotine, you know? I think Which this is, is worse because it splashes Oh, it's absolutely up. worse because <laughs> it splashes. Oh, God. And they go, they go and grab, like, they dab their handkerchiefs in the blood as, like, a Ugh. momentum or as Memento, a... Memento, yeah token i guess yeah no it's fucking t- horrifying i i i assume that was kind of the visual that he was going for trying to evoke of the uh french revolution the guillotines that makes a lot of sense especially given some of the context that were given a little bit later by some of the uh the poetry and things like that are kind of the the coming against and the fighting against those who kind of turned We'll we'll talk a lot about a couple of different pieces of literature in a moment here, but yeah, I I can't help but agree with you. There are three. We've got three pieces of literature to talk about yet, and they're all, two are significant. One is adjacent. We'll call it adjacent. Yeah. Wow. There's an internal dialogue that Virginia has as well. What dreams these Vox must have have. What fools to think it comes for free. That I, th- I I just think that line is absolutely brilliant and reflects on the coming tension of the rest of the chapter. Zahn, of course, speaks of Mars being divided. Kieran o- Olegos has taken over as governor of Mars, with Sefi taking the other third after the death of Rollo from the last chapter, the last section that we read. After Publius finally addresses Virginia in the room, she's been sitting here this whole time, forced to watch this torture, unable to say anything after being addressed. And the points that Darrow had kind of set up the warden's defection, she she like reflects on those things, but can't account for how Lilith could have accounted for her and Dancer's plan. We, of course, learn a little bit more about this later, but there's just there's so much that happens inside of the scene that she's just forced to suffer through one way or another. And boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. as you said earlier, yeah, no, I I love the term boy howdy. <laughs> <laughs> that and ah shucky ducky, ah shucky ducky, yeah, that's for sure a real one. <laughs> anyway, as far as her just kind of inability to ascertain the 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 way Lilith is able to glean her and Dancer's plan. My assumption at the time when I was reading all this, um, we learned the truth later, but my assumption was that there was somebody very close to Dancer, like one of his aides or one of his like 
first in commands or like the, somebody directly next to him that knew everything that he was doing mm-hmm. that was in the pocket of of the syndicate makes way more sense that it's just fucking birds. Ye- fuck birds. Yeah, fuck birds. I mean, the we'll talk more about the pocket bells, of course, when they come up. But, dude, yeah. this is one of the things when it was revealed to me. That I just lost it because I, I, I immediately recalled all the different moments where it was called out that they're singing their familiar tone in the background. And it was just this thing that like Lyria commented on when she was meeting with, I think, Dr. Virini in the in, in book four um, when they were talking with when you when she was talking with the old dude about the the sort of poisons that he was working on and whatnot in the plants. And there's just like all of these like different small moments where the Pachelbel's kept popping up inside of the city and i was like oh fuck especially the reread i was like i can't point i pointed them out a couple of times just to make clear and evident yep i never picked up on it yeah not once yeah Hmm. not a once it was just funny because you also never made like a birds or drones joke and i fully expected that oh yeah no birds aren't real like This has just solidified my absolute true 100% real PJ is talking about how he feels about birds in the real life. Birds aren't fucking real. They're government drones. They're here to spy on you and they're going to hurt you at some point. And ruin your day. I wrote a whole short story about how awful pigeons are because they're drones. So I feel you. Well, pigeons are awful for other reasons. But they're also drones. But they're also drones. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, (laughs) (laughs) after the sort of conversation that happens with uh, with Publius about all of these different facts and kind of the the things that he's able to point out that he shouldn't be able to, Publius goes on a bit of a rant and uh, a sort of expository speech of which Virginia describes as waxing grandiloquent. I, I think that the speech is fairly genius on his part. He's kind of like right by and large on the differences of the different approaches to government after a revolution, which is also a massive theme of this book series is sort of the fallout of a revolution so far. So the, these are obviously big things to be tackling, but I think his, he's obviously bringing up something that is also fundamental to us today. in in a lot of ways that we think about things, but that of like terror and virtue, of government and rule and change in accordance with rebellion and revolution. What did you make of his speech and kind of the conversation? So the terror and virtue part wasn't about government and rule. That was about rebellion. No, those, yeah, those were like levers to be used. Yeah. So, so like you mentioned, it's relevant today, but, um, he, he makes some really good points. And if he were to feel truly oppressed, these arguments are really, really valid. There are a lot of the same arguments, like we're like we're mentioning, that are made today regarding just the last couple of years in America with with protests and all kinds of civil rights things that are happening, and how there needs to be something beyond protesting within the sandbox of what's appropriate protesting that's created by the people that they're protesting against there. There needs to be something that strikes fear into the hearts of leadership in order to get anything done. And that, that is genuinely just the reality of, of populations. 
and and government and leadership and i think it it, it makes total sense this argument is really really well done the problem is i don't believe him. yeah i i don't believe him right like i yeah. his his points he's changed from the incorruptible to like the incorrigible in my head yeah. um but yeah. Like his points are very, very strong and make total sense. I just don't believe him. Yeah. And I, I think that in, in large part, he, like you said, and I, I think especially when evaluating kind of the lens that he's talking about, potentially, and maybe Pierce is talking about kind of modern politics in a way. I, I so agree with you about the kind of fear into the hearts of leadership. I think that there is a direct lack of accountability no matter who you're talking about outside of like very local politicians. Um, and that's about it, you know, as far as accountability goes. So mm-hmm. I definitely agree. And I think that he is, he's hitting just a perfect note with a perfect hammer that, that I think cracks open really a part of the the problem here. And I think that he obviously has a dream of utopic society and is dreaming of um, a, a very, socialist empire like a true like pure socialism where like no one works for anything except for the the good of all and because everyone contributes everything is great like that's kind of his end all yeah. conversation here he literally says no property yeah right so like, I, it, it's illegal to own private property something along those lines yeah no no private citizenry like everyone is a citizen so like i i understand like his end goals and i understand kind of the he's presenting a, a semi-extremist version you know and in in a time of revolution you can do things like that and that i understand why i mean you you i think you hit the nail on the head with with socialists because adrius later on refers to him as his his socialist lapdog yeah i i think that it's a little bit i mean compared to modern people's expectations of socialism are a little bit different and whatever else you know we we don't need to dive into that entirely we're, we're a podcast yeah, we're about not literature gonna... not about politics but uh i i think that this is an excellent dialogue to at the very least consider and if you don't take a second to think about this from the other perspective i recommend that you open up your brain a little bit and and think about the way like the biggest life hack that i could ever give to other people is if you have an opinion, Google the opposite opinion and read it and think about it. At the very least, think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So if you feel directly opposed to this, regardless of whatever your beliefs are, like just figure it out, dude. Read. Read a little bit. Might reinforce your opinion. That's okay. Ultimately, I do find it funny that he believes to be in the clear of the syndicate due to the actions of Severo, taking out a lot of the syndicate headquarters and everything like that on the behest of Mustang. However, as we know, he didn't realize the depths of the very, very, very real threat that Lilith Alpharon poses here. But we'll get to that in just a little moment. So, um, the other thing that's kind of funny is how, like... He's been in this position basically the entire time that the Republic has been around, right? No, he's only been at... So he's been in his position as a senator, yes, since the Republic has been around. But what position are you referring to? I mean, okay. As like a society, as like a syndicate puppet? Yeah, that's more what I'm talking about. I think it's mentioned a little bit later uh, that Adrius 
was had like laid out a plan to take advantage of someone who could be corruptible to then like lead to this plan. And I think it happened, if I remember correctly from the text, I think it happened five years ago, five years prior to the story. So okay. when he was a toddler, when, when Bob and Adrius was a toddler. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess that diminishes my point a little bit, but I'm more, my point is he, he clearly just wants oh, power. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's my argument. That doesn't with, change. With, with saying that, like, because these actions are made, like, the, I, assuming his, uh, his deal was to be, like, to eventually overthrow Virginia and be in control. Like, what he wants is power. And he is really just kind of bullshitting all of the reasons why he's doing this because he genuinely just believes that he's in power. now. Yes. It's, it's an air of righteousness that I don't think is genuine. It's, it's definitely not gen like he's, well, it's especially made not genuine because he doesn't actually stand up for himself later, which proves that he is not incorruptible. He actually doesn't stand for anything, right? Like if he, if he stood up and didn't eat brains <laughs> at the very least, he would have stood for the ideals <laughs> that he just preached, but he doesn't stand for that. Yeah. He stands for living and continuing and having a chance at power. Those are, those are very different things. So he eats brains first. Yeah. I, I think that this is actually a great point. We'll talk about that more later. <laughs> Um, but I, I think that you bring up a great point, which is that he thinks about his own kind of righteousness and his own ability to access power. And that's ultimately like Osgard or not that different, that different from Osgard, at least Osgard is honest about it, you know, whereas Publius is not at all honest about like his lever of power, the way that he influences people, you know, as I, as I think back to these, yeah, as pubes, good call pubes. Good call. With that, we move into chapter 54, Virginia, Justice of the Meek. Wow. Do I have a lot to say about this chapter, but I I love it. So this chapter is actually fairly small, but it influences a lot of the rest of the conversation that we're going to have. So speak of the devil, speak of (laughs) Lilith Alferon, and she drops a rope right in to join, join the party. After having Virginia's charges read out loud, many of which are fabricated, of course, including like sleeping with Daxo in front of the cameras, the room is shook, the cameras are killed. As three original Bone Riders tear apart the room in ghost cloaks, beheading wardens and sowing chaos throughout this judgment hall. The 17 of Adrius's most loyal uh, Bone Riders are freed, have been freed from Deep Grave and are loyal to Lilath Alpharan in his place, the Queen of the Syndicate. I think it's one hell of a reveal for our cowering Publius. We, of course, have known that Lilath has been in charge for a bit now. It's been almost... Almost 20 chapters since we found out about Lilath. Has it really? Oh, dude. It's been like three weeks. Wow. I know. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I guess so. These chapters really aren't that long. We only have six episodes left. That was like the number of episodes in Red Rising. I know. Seven in Red Rising. (laughs) Actually, we have five episodes left. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, we have five episodes left, dude. Jesus. I know. And then we... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> and then and then what? Then void. <laughs> well, then we've then got void and terror. Then we've got some interviews, then we've got some other conversations, then we've got the comics, and then we've got Mistborn. But 
But anyway, that's got to be a pretty big kick in the dick for a good old pubes right there, right? <laughs> I think it is a massive sack tap of uncompensated <laughs> proportions, dude. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> he was just not at all expecting what is about to happen inside of the room, right? Like, all these wardens are killed. This blue shouts against the shit. She jumps, Lilath jumps across the room with her iron axe. She, she, she actually, I think she, yeah, she jumps across the room with the iron axe, hacks apart the dude's brain, the blue's brain, and just, like, leaves it there. And then, because she's speaking shit against Publius and sort of the, the you you allied with the syndicate with the bone riders blah 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 and so she kills the fuck out of her and then puts on this iron crown the iron axe and iron crown of course I will talk more about in a little bit but it's a it's a terrifying scene and an awful time for our boy pubes <laughs> pubes <laughs> sack tap <laughs> our boy I, I don't I feel dirty saying our boy but I felt like it fit well. I, you know, what's what's funny is we were using our boy for both Lysander and pubes. So it, you know, is it equivalent? Is it the same? It's kind of, it's not, is it that far off? <laughs> nope, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, I, I also think it's fun. So you know what I, we adopt, we adopt the downtrodden here. <laughs> and the ran over. <laughs> Dude, fucking, oh, fuck, fuck pubes. Lilath, though, here treats Publius like a fucking mutt, right? Putting him on a literal leash for, like, with force. And she, someone else refers, she refers to someone else as the emperor. And there's this voice, this familiar cadence, this flaxen hair, all of these different realizations. And Virginia, without being able to turn her head fully and, like, fully realize the picture that's just out of frame despite the penetration of the deep psycho spike fucking with her emotions, she realizes that that voice is the voice of her brother, the Jackal, an abomination of the brother that she knew, of the brother that she killed, is made a boy once more. And I can't fucking lie, PJ. This reveal, this time, gives me goosebumps in such a bad way. Like, it's the worst kind. We're like... You're kidding me. The jackal is fucking back. The jackal, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Um. So I know the reveals only a couple paragraphs long, like between between when between the entrance and when we know it's the jackal. I mean, we we figure out it's the jackal pretty quickly, but mm-hmm. until we realize that it's a clone, I was really trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. Like, if there was some sort of necromancer carver kind of guy that was, like, carving the jackal back alive, I I didn't know what the fuck was going on. But this this whole reveal was intense and terrifying and just fucking perfect. I was very happy with how this went down. It was just awful. And amazing. I I can't I can't lie, dude. This is one of the plot points that I was like. This is the only plot point in the entire series that I was concerned that you'd be like, "There's no fucking way that that's that that could happen." But they do a good enough job, I think, of selling it over time, where it, it just makes sense. You're just wrapped in, and this is like, of course, of course, it's the fucking jackal. Of course, he did this. Of course, this was his plan. 
not the whole yeah. thing, but like, of course he had a backup plan. Yeah. And I, I think what, uh, was it last week? I think it might've been last week that I said that, ah, no, Sophocles is probably the only clone in the universe. Literally last week, dude, I, <laughs> we've, we've made mentions of the like no PJ zone in the discord and that episode got published today and people were like the only clone in the universe. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah everyone was like oh my god pj's in for a rude awakening and it's literally only been a couple of hours since those folks listened to that episode and i just yeah this is the today is the day that that got released yes this is thursday yes correct generally we like to give we would love to give a little bit more leeway for the people so that they can answer the questions but because of our restrictions this month we're a little bit trapped but the abomination waxes poetic for a second around about like leo tolstoy's where love is god is which is a story in many ways about not realizing the moment that's in front of you. And that's the way that he's kind of treating it. Uh, this this man in the main story, Martin, feels mistreated by God and feels neglected and is visited by a uh, by a missionary of whom gives him um, information and it basically says that you should you should trust God and kind of gives it as this this sort of story that reminds of okay let's 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 be a little bit frank about this this story is often quoted by evangelicals and catholics as sort of a a sort of evidence uh not not an evidence of god because obviously it's a fictional story but it's one of of like having faith in something right and so this this story the story of martin is one of coming around to having faith despite praying and not seeing signs and facing hardships and despite the hardships he helps out a number of people who visit him who kind of appear as apparitions he knows everyone's shoes but these he's a cobbler in russia and he doesn't know these other folks shoes when they show up at his door and they need his help so he ends up helping three individuals over the course of the story and kind of from that point he is then later visited by by God, who actually reveals that he was the three people all along and that he was doing godly things despite God not appearing in front of him and was there the whole time. The reason I say this is because this is the story that the jackal is referencing or the abominatrius is referencing in in relation to kind of what's going on in front of him. And I think that it's especially important as a artifact of his sort of revelation that he's making in front of Publius. So he to Publius is God, right? Publius was leaning on, was leaning on in a lot of ways, um, God in this idea and in sort of the syndicate as this tool and the revelations and not understanding what was actually in front of him until it appeared, right? Like you could consider the three visitors that visited Martin in Leo Tolstoy's story here as his own impression of, of God, right? So as Publius's impression of God, I know that I'm rambling a little bit here just trying to circle us back to the point so that leaves our boy not really our clone <laughs> abominadrius as god in this picture as he reveals himself he he thinks about himself as this sort of extra godly figure we kind of the audience in this parallel parable are the cobbler not exactly realizing what's in front of us as we've been presented with the syndicate so often and so much but later Mustang even kind of points out on page 474 that this clone was raised to believe that he was a god. And so this this entire parable, as he's reciting it to the audience of people that are about to eat brains, the the low colors that are about to eat brains, 
is one of sort of self-centered egotism, but is still driven by this kind of core story. Does that make sense? Did that make Mm -hmm. sense? It was a little rambly, but yeah, it made sense. Okay. Yeah, no, that made sense. You, You pulled it all together there at the end. Sort of the idea of the secret leader, I guess, if you want to put it secret that way. force. That is, but yeah, secret force. But I mean, he's coming into rule now, effectively or hypothetically. But he's kind of the secret leader behind the secret leader behind Publius, who is secretly. There are a lot of layers to this. Is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Like it, there are so many different layers that they have to kind of cut through. Um, to really understand what's going on. So I, I, I think, I think that that parable makes sense. That story makes sense until you mentioned it to me. I had no idea what that reference was. Hadn't had any. idea. So I I just want to add like a little bit of color to this as I, as I think about it, the thing that I've kind of maybe removed a little bit here is that on the front end, Martin lost, had his wife die, had two children die. And then later had a, a son who was three years old die. Um, and at that point, he kind of curses and denies God. Martin, who I view as Publius and the Vox in this circumstance, decry their God. He decries God, which I think in, in sort of the story is the society. And as as we look at Publius and the Vox through Darrow, they overthrow the society. They remove God from his life. Right. In the process of that, Adrius dies but he actually survives through the abomination, which we know. And Martin, kind of thinking that he's doing the right thing, helps the pastors by without realizing who he's helping along the way. Right. So he's helping. He's building up this person that he doesn't know when he's he's trying to find God, which is actually when he when it's realized at the end, it's this God, the syndicate that he's been kind of pulling along and helping is actually Adrius and the abomination. And thus the society kind of has a return to face does that make more sense i feel like it's better phrased yeah okay. yeah yeah for sure mm-hmm. so that is leo tolstoy's <laughs> uh where where love is god is which it's a it's a novella it's not very long i recommend most people read it it's it's a good it's an interesting fit here inside of the story because it's actually it's interesting specifically because Adrius brings it up as this kind of egotistical thing as him viewing himself as God in this story. That's why I think that it's so interesting. Like you yeah. said, kind of the secret leader behind the secret leader, and he views himself as this superior force inside of the story. Well, he's been he's been raised to think that. He's he's just a fucking kid at this point. But not really. But he's not any older than as- Paxes, you know? Yeah, and he's still just a fucking kid, too. But he's a cool kid because he smokes burners. Um, <laughs> and rides the school bus and swears a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, as far as that whole story goes, though, I'm assuming the joke of, like, the guy sitting on his roof during a during a flood and refusing help from a raft and a boat and a helicopter because God's going to save him. God revealing that, like, he sent all of those is a bastardization of this this short story mm-hmm. right I'm guessing oh yeah yeah and uh, that's that's the entire thing is it's it he is referencing this short story but he's bastardizing it and he's trying to make it fit his own kind of analogy which is also why it sounds like i'm struggling to make it make sense because he doesn't make it make sense like he is trying his damnedest without a real understanding of the text of the facts to mm-hmm. make it make sense but 
especially when you when you start to look at the sort of specific phrasing that he uses he says i know this emotion the abomination says sweetly this reminds me of a novel i've read about a shoemaker in old russia it's this moment isn't it this moment where you breathe on all fours your heads privately tucked to your own chins where the personal myth which you shrouded around your hearts collapses under its own weight and you realize what you actually are not weak that would still give you a victim narrative with enough tragic romance upon which to nurse yourselves. Not average, you are all clever in a rudimentary way. Just smart enough to rise above the sea of human meat to comprehend how insignificant you really are. The abomination touches Publius's head. We all want to be special. It must ache to discover that you are not. Oh. And and yep. that's that's where it kind of feels like that perversion, like you were saying. It's, it's he, he is removing he's like fully excising parts of the story about belief to make it this this story about a a thing that's right in front of you almost it's it's a misunderstanding of the story like a 10 year old might have i I wasn't trying to like make the connection that that bastardization was anything to do with this with this part of the story you actually stole that because i'm going to talk about that later (laughs) <laughs> oh are you actually yeah no this is actually a part of the story because it, it becomes a part of uh, of virginia's narrative later when she's reflecting on him and sort of the way that he's brought up you you mentioned it that like lilath has treated him like a god and so he believes that he is a god when like and her word to anger him is like i think you maybe should have spent more time outside like and that's that's how she breaks him as this like from this sort of thought creature that he is who's been kind of trapped inside of libraries versus the other Adrius that experienced life and all of the horrors of it, you know? So like, gotcha. you're not wrong. You actually brought up the point and solved my so, equation before I even presented it to you because I didn't <laughs> fully put it in the notes. So gotcha. Um, I'm, I'm talking like the joke that I brought up as a bastardization of that story is, is inapplicable here. And that I, I wasn't trying to like apply it. I just, thought it was interesting that it would connected I, mm. I felt like it connected this story but that part yeah uh didn't mean to steal it from you sorry about that no there's there's nothing wrong with it you connecting the dot is great i'm, I'm not gonna i will never shy away from you figuring shit out so mm-hmm. uh especially when it comes to like i need these wins i need these wins <laughs> it's, sometimes. it's i mean yes you definitely deserve the wins that you earn no one's no one will ever take those away from you pj but also mm-hmm. this is one of those unexpected wins where you you figured it out and again this is actually not one that i connected until literally today when i was going through kind of a final pass of, of a read through there's another one that we're going to talk about in a bit but there this just there were a couple of things that hit so hard so clearly to me upon read through and this was one of them so Nice. Our uh, our final moment of the scene, though, is one of abject terror, wherein the abomination, the clone of Adrius, the abominatorius, as we've referred to him so far, picks up the previously slaughtered blues brains, doles them out onto plates for the remaining vox to eat before he proclaims the natural order has resumed and the chant of Hicksunt Leones comes from his bone riders. And fuck, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, man. The only thing that's really redeeming here is that pubes starts actually eating the brains first, like we mentioned before. <laughs> God, he's such a dick. Oh, everybody involved here is such a dick. Fuck them all. <laughs> yeah, I 
could not agree more like every i mean like they deserve they deserve what they get right and the couple that rebelled against of course get shot and that that logically makes sense for them and that's why the others don't necessarily rebel in the same fashion i understand but it also points them out as cowardly fucks especially in the case of publius not standing up for the things that he believes in and that is Mm -hmm. kind of an awful awful problem you know yeah 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 yeah, definitely. Definitely so. a problem. There's a lot of problems, Crosland. A lot of problems that come about here. <laughs> yeah, to say that there are a lot of problems is an understatement because this entire, like, our week inside of Virginia's perspective is just messed up. So, with that chapter behind us, we w- move into the largest chapter of the entire section. Chapter 55, Virginia, the wolf and the mother. Of course, the wolf and the mother are referring to... Lilith and Abominadrius. At the very beginning of the chapter, Virginia opens it up with, I am in a nightmare. Yes. Yes, Virginia. And we are all here with you. (laughs) (laughs) The the entire chamber has been flipped, destroyed, and ruined by the absolute abominations that that has kind of occurred, the, the sort of manifestation of the carnage that has occurred over the last couple of chapters the wardens decorate the walls as the bone riders have pinned them up like fucking decorations gorgos here at the right hand of the abomination several clown and pebble are captured beaten and dragged into this room they're all shocked of course by the jackal's appearance as a as this clone that we know him to be and he goes about the clone abominatrius goes about unraveling his plan and how this version of him came to be he planned it from before the attempt to steal the crown from octavia and left the instructions to lilath to be followed in case of his untimely demise what do you think of the plan and the way that lilath looks to and at and at looks to and at the clone emperor abomination thingy majig uh very concise very well, well said uh, i'm trying to sum up the gotta... first part of the chapter like the first two pages trying yeah no so you're much. Good. that's sorry sorry no no, no you're good sometimes. you're good my my initial thought here and i know we've i i'm trying to think if we've talked about it or if it was just mentioned in the text and we haven't or both uh the the similarities between the jackal and darrow mm. i'm thinking like back in Morningstar before the howlers like break in and uh into his office they talk about second births I've, they no uh, darrow's referred to as having a second birth in this book when he when he comes out of the box he's that's been revealed to be called the second birth so this is the jackal's second birth he has an extremely loyal following much like the the howlers um, who are all elite killers that'll basically do whatever he asks of them. I, I can't remember. I can't remember where we had this conversation, but I feel like we talked about the direct similarities between Darrow and the Jackal. And I don't know if that was mentioned in the text or if it was just us discussing it on the show. That's all I was thinking. As, as we think about the various birds, and I, I totally agree with you, and I think that we follow a linear path between these two characters now at this point, and we're, we're able to kind of measure them against each other. But Darrow's first birth, of course, is outside of Tiana, uh, <laughs> leading into his, his second birth, which is carving, and the third birth, of which is referred to by most of the reds and the other colors as they know it, as his second birth, is the one a- after he leaves the box of Adrius's 
design. Looking at the other side of the spectrum, the first birth that I see is Adrius also being born of his mother. The second birth is uh, his birth in the caves, of which he refers to instead of a conversation with Darrow. So when when he has to emerge and has to choose to survive, feels like that second birth. And the third birth is here now, him relearning how to be himself from this third perspective. Well, I don't think they're perfectly identical in, in the ways of which our characters change and grow because Adrius obviously fails and then is regrown, you know, versus Darrow's continual growth throughout his character. It does feel like an, an interesting point of juxtaposition between the two, especially as they refer to their own birds. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So uh, I don't think that we're that thematically far off. I, I, I would just say that what do you think about um, Lilith being left with these instructions and sort of the overall plot point of this this sort of nature? I, I, I guess like my question is, is did this shock you? Did you feel good about it? What how did you how did this register with you when you read it? Oh, man. Um, just the entire scene, the entire situation as far as like, yeah, Lilith goes. God, she feels desperate. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she, she feels is, like for sure. beyond being terif- terrifying and just a, a really capable killer and just absolute visage of death. She is desperate and just wants attention from this m- little baby boy. And I don't know. It, it was a weird uh, juxtaposition of the two sort of feelings. I don't know how to so feel. you didn't feel cheated when when he appeared. No, I didn't feel okay. cheated. All right. Um, I would have felt cheated if it wasn't a clone, which we have established for several books exist within the universe. If it was something completely novel, if Sophocles wasn't a clone and that was well established, if it was just a, a carved up body that had been rebreathed life, like there, there are so many ways where his return would have felt cheap and, I wouldn't have bought into it, but this one worked really well within the pre-established rules of the universe. Sure. I, I really, I really enjoy that perspective and kind of that read on it. I think that that makes a a ton of sense. So obviously there's a lot of, of things that go on inside of this, this wonderful, wonderful chapter that we're going to talk about. But I, I think one of the moments, of course, of superiority that's laid out from the abominations perspective is when he sits down in the morning chair and he reflects on his rule and how his rule is going to happen across the society, the new society that he's, he's laying out. It's going to be secret. And also his machinations, he, he lays out his machinations behind the day of red doves, his birds, the pockabells, the secret to it all. And as I mentioned earlier, they've been here the whole fucking time, spinning around, singing all their songs, all the way back in Iron Gold, lurking around these fucking birds singing that Pachelbel cannon in the back of our ears. Literally, in this case, birds are drones. What do you mean in this case? <laughs> birds aren't fucking real, Crossland. Yeah. Pierce Brown gets it. Yeah. He's trying to warn all of you. And... uh Seriously, heat is warning. Do not trust a this, bird. This is so funny because, like, the by Felicia <laughs> joke feels so, like, abject and, like, strange. But this is, like, literally a birds are drones joke. <laughs> like, it's so, <laughs> it's so good and, like, popularly, like, on point with culture. It's it's so well done and also such a big plot point. 
Like, <laughs> this is a massive point of the story. Like, it's been going on for a whole, like, 800, 900 pages at this point. So, I mean, the the lie is well known, and it's just... Especially when rereading Iron Gold, you see all those different moments where they mention the Pokebells and the birds, and you're like, oh, wow, there are a lot of birds in these scenes. Why are there so many birds? Weird that they're describing all the birds all the fucking time. And you're like, oh, oh, no, oh, no. When you hit this point, it's just, especially at a reread, dude, it it hits hard and just right. Abominadrius also reveals something that the Society Remnant... ridiculous name. It's so ridiculous. It's, I love it. It is the common it so much. parlance among the fans. Uh, but parlance? It, parlance, yeah. It's what a, the fuck <laughs> kind of term are you pulling out here? Common language or vernacular shared among people of a similar creator culture. That's what parlance means. You're a nerd. And I love you. Um, I get the irony of me calling you a nerd. But in this moment, you are the nerd. I'll never never let you live it. The down. Society Revenant, though, believes that Lilath is this Red Queen. And that and and to me, this harkens out to a couple of obvious examples when when we when I see Red Queen capitalized, right? Which is the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, right? So there's a difference actually between the two books of the the Red Queen and the Queen of Hearts. Um, the Queen of Hearts is from Through the Looking Glass. The Red Queen is from, or sorry, the Red Queen is from Through the Looking Glass. The Queen of Hearts is from Alice in Wonderland. And they're actually different characters. However, Disney combined them, so it kind of jumbles the message a little bit. But Off with Their Heads, of course, is established with Queen of Hearts, which is very similar to the way that Lilath has kind of approached the way of executing the former group of uh, Republic assets, including Theodora, Servilla, and in theory mustang daxo kind of the way that all of these people are being treated is very much an off with their heads queen of the hearts house in wonderland way but sort of the latter reference to through the looking glass is a, a conversation that alice and the red queen have and the red queen is not sort of the vile character that the queen of hearts is in alice in wonderland instead the red queen is educating alice on how to play chess and that a pawn can achieve a promotion to a queen upon reaching the other side of the board. The, the reason that I bring this all up, of course, is because Red Queen is capitalized. So it's kind of speaking and saying that, like, Lilath has achieved from her lowly state versus the society is, like, gained regardless of her house, regardless of her color. They're, they're giving the society remnant is giving the Red Queen credit for all of the damage that she has done to the Republic. And so they're basically giving her that promotion, that promotion to queen, making her kind of feel like a gold. But what do you read of all of that literature I mean, nonsense? So uh, there's there's a few things, but I'm going to go backwards, I think, a little. Mm -hmm. Lilith is a peerless scar. Correct. She is not a lowly pawn. <laughs> She's one of the highest fucking ranked, like, people in the entire goddamn society no no but she's also so, disappeared and is believed to be dead so like she's yeah. she's playing a stealth organization on on one side yeah. so agreed but, understood but agreed but, but if she's doing this to herself her calling herself a pawn is fucking ridiculous and fuck her <laughs> that said just the the idea of somebody lowly and somebody um not within government coming up and and ruling Makes sense. And and the evocation of Red Queen makes total sense there. Queen of Hearts is what I'm more familiar with. 
I wasn't actually aware that they were separate characters. Um, I know I've read Alice in Wonderland, Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass. It has been genuinely decades. I think multiple decades since I've read them. So welcome to the show. I don't (laughs) read much. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't remember a lot of it. And that sort of combination from Disney is how I know it. I, I can't imagine that there's any other explanation than pulling from those stories and, uh, queen of hearts, red queen, whatever. Um, yeah, it's, uh, super, super cool sort of way to break that down. I really appreciate it. I mean, it, it feels overly complicated for something that is basically a capitalization of a, of a title, right? Red queen, is a capitalization of a title that could be given to them by other characters, to Lilith by other characters. But it yeah. does hold a sort of weightiness in, in literature that doesn't feel like it's thrown around when you consider the situation that Lilith is in. That's where it becomes this sort of like, she believes that she can move in any direction. She is the Red Queen, when in reality, she's kind of a, a little bit of a puppet. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there there is the sort of connection later to all of this um, to make it a little bit less red stringy um, (laughs) sort of description. The, uh, the next chapter is called a maze with no center and the queen of hearts, her, her palace is surrounded by mazes, right? Yes. Yes. It is surrounded by hedge mazes. (laughs) Good, good pull. I'm yeah. I don't know if it's intentional, but I assume it is. Mm-hmm. I assume that all plays in. I I think Piercy Boy is pretty smart. I think he knows what's. what's I up. I think this is actually one of his most brilliantly written sections, which is also why we're talking about it so ad nauseum at this point. Is like we are definitely digging into all of the individual details because there's so fucking much here. Honestly, at this point, I'm staring at the clock and I'm like, it's two it, two thirty in in the total read time, and I'm like, we're roughly halfway through i mean there's there's some stuff that will breeze through but if we have to do this as a fucking two-parter i don't care because there's so much here to talk about so Mm -hmm. regardless moving on from the red queen thing the severo unable to kind of hold back after hearing his child's life threatened of course like he's given kind of the warning by abominadrius about his sort of idle threats that are made against him and he gives him a couple of passes and he's not like if you make another one i'm gonna i'm gonna take severe action and so several several after having all of these different threats issued against him is unable to hold back after he hears his kids threatened and called the mongrel children and in all of these other things um it just it hurts as abominadrius just casually threatens as this kind of self-imposed emperor and Gorgo brings out this giant statue of an iron wolf, iron once again, as the voices of the howlers call back from inside the ha- the statue. Minmin and others trapped in the statue begin to howl and scream as it glows, roasting all of them that are inside, creating a low howl as their flesh and organs give out and howl out through the mouth of the statue as they're burned alive. And this to me is one of the most fucked up things. And this is our fucking book of fucked up shit. Yeah. If there was any doubt that this clone was Adrius, I feel like those doubts have to like concede right here. Like this is so fucked up. This is so fucking crazy. 
Yeah, I. It hurts. It. It just hurts. I. I just like. It, as we imagine, even the end of this, right? Like this is a moment of just reprisal based on words. After the actions that are taken at the end of this section that Virginia takes to escape, can you imagine the punishment that might be coming down the pipe for our three? As we talked about them earlier, bad parents, our one good parent, our one loving parent, and our two bad parents, like Clown and Pebble. Fuck. Yeah, this is. At least they're together. Right? Yeah, well, all right. Or is that worse? If Luke and Leia died on the first Death Star, would it be okay in the end? Wouldn't, because Emperor Palpatine would have still lived. I don't know. That's a nonsensical yeah, non sequitur. That's yeah. That's not a good. That's not a good it's not even a good comparison. So with that, it's <laughs> shitty, and we're going to move on. Our final moment of the chapter is one of Severo being told that he will be mind controlled by the psycho psycho spike and sort of influenced, and he is being told these things of which he he is going to be controlled and made to like go kill his family which we learned a little bit later is obviously way more intense than a lot of his other beliefs which he's stood here in front of this iron golem despite the the folks burning inside of it and been able to withhold a lot of his wrath but the moment that they threaten his family he jumps and he gets shot he gets hit he gets beat he gets beat again he gets beat again and he is just trying his damnedest to make his way to Adrius to strangle the life from him. Abomin' Adrius, because it's not really Adrius, but the the clone of Adrius. And fuck, dude. Yeah. I have a tough time chewing this chapter with Severo. Oh, God. I mean, what else would he do? Like, of course that's what he's going to do. His other option is to sit there and fucking take it. And when has Severo ever just sat there and fucking took it? Yeah. Like, that's not who he is. And I genuinely, I commend him for that. I think that was, character-wise, I think that was the right right call. And if he actually gets a, if he gets a shot in, he could probably kill a 10-year-old with a single punch, right? Even a gold one. I think he could. Yeah, he definitely could. He <laughs> could punch him out so hard that he would have never been born and would have never fucked over the Republic. No, but actually I'm, I'm pretty sure that all it would take is a, is like a body blow because he's not fully developed. Even if he's a gold kid, there's no way that like his bones could take an adult golds beating, you know? Yeah. I mean, Sever was a half breed, but yeah. Know. All right, PJ, are you ready for <laughs> this, uh, this bold section? I don't want to leave it at that. I don't want to leave it at a, disparaging comment about Severo's like lineage. Like, I think, he okay. Could, I think he could fucking, he could fucking kill him. I think he could too. Punch. I, I was trying not to say that. I don't think that he couldn't kill him. I was just saying that. Like, I know, but no, what I, what I'm saying is I left him. I left it saying hmm. that he was a half breed. Yeah. I mean, what if this, what if this is the last that we hear of Severo for the entire book PJ for the last 200 pages? This is the last we see. You of know, Severo. I be sad, but I don't know what to believe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You've like, been so disillusioned. I'm not disillusioned. I just, I can only make the same bet so many times. <laughs> like, I can only make the bet that nobody's going to die off page so many times before I'm wrong. 
And like, when am I going to be wrong? Okay. I don't believe he's going to die, but I also don't want to make like a public announcement that I believe he's going to survive. So you know what? He's in limbo and it's okay. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so here's, here's what we do. We're about to talk okay. about a poem written by Ruyard Kipling and who we've, we've actually talked about Kipling a lot over the last couple of weeks. He was mentioned uh, as Seneca's favorite poet before Lysander executed Seneca. He was also mentioned earlier on uh, by, I believe, Calendora mentioned a poem. Actually, that wasn't Riard. Riard has been referenced three times throughout this. The first reference actually might have been by Screwface, now that I think about it, but referenced a number of times. And so Pierce is clearly ruminating on on Riard, and Riard is also one of my favorite poets. And so when I was rereading through the section, I was like, it's weird that there's kind of this fixation on iron as it comes to adrius and the way that he's he's thinking about things and i i started to look up some of the various phrases and and things like that that were kind of working around inside of the story and i realized in in the back of my brain that there was a a poem that fit very closely with both the situation with publius and adrius as well as sort of the society versus the republic in the form of Adrius's perspective. So we are going to read for you folks at home. Cold Iron by Riyard Kipling. Are you ready? <coughs> Gold is for the mistresses, silver for the maid, copper for the craftsman cunning at his trade. Good, said the baron, sitting in his hall. But iron, cold iron, is master of them all. So he made rebellion against the king his liege, camped before the citadel and summoned to his it to siege nay said the cannoneer on the castle wall but iron cold iron shall be master of you all. woe for the baron and his knights so strong when the cruel cannonballs laid them all along he was taken prisoner he was cast in thrall and iron cold iron was master of it all yet his king spake kindly ah how kind a lord what if i release thee now and give thee back thy sword Nay, said the baron, mock not at my fall, for iron, cold iron, is master of men all. Tears are for the craven, prayers for the clown, halters for the silly neck that cannot keep a crown. As my loss is grievous, so my hope is small, for iron, cold iron, must be master of men all. Yet his king made answer, few such kings there be. Here is bread and here is wine, sit and sup with me. Eat and drink in Mary's name. The whiles I do recall how iron, cold iron, can be master of men all. He took the wine and blessed it. He blessed it and break the bread. With his own hands he served them, and presently he said, See, these hands they pierced with nails outside my city wall. Show iron, cold iron, to be the master of men all. Wounds are for the desperate, blows are for the strong. Balm and oil for weary hearts, and all cut and bruised with wrong. I forgive thy treason, I redeem thy fall, for iron, cold iron, must be master of men all. Crowns are for the valiant, scepters for the bold, thrones and powers for mighty men who dare to take hold. Nay, said the baron, kneeling in his hall, but iron, cold iron, is master of men all. Iron out of Calvary is master of men all. So... The reason that I had us read this poem is because I think that it is it is a critical understanding of why iron is a repeating theme as sort of the weapon 
of Abominadrius and of the syndicate at this point against the other forces. Because I think that Kipling and Pierce both treat the sort of rebellion and uprising of these two different characters as they're fighting against each other and reflecting as this sort of like give and take relationship, right? So as the story goes on, the Baron is fighting the King. The Baron loses to the King, despite the Baron's love for iron and understanding of what iron is and what it could take to possess iron and the power of it. The King has more, has a better understanding, can, can fight against it. And so he, he's able to repress the Baron. So then the Baron being the captive of the King continues along this path of subjugation and it is basically said no no no. you can you can take over your lands you can continue to control things you can continue to try to do things the way you want to but i'm ultimately in charge and the baron denies that because he doesn't believe that that is going to be the proper way to rule and so there's sort of this this sort of conflict back and forth in which ultimately leads to the Baron surrendering entirely saying that his life is basically forfeit by the end because of, of the, the mighty rule of iron over all of the other metals. There are a couple of different metaphors that are tucked inside of this poem that I think are also tucked inside of this story. So does that make sense before I continue? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Just want to make sure Given kind of the, the context of our breakdown, you read this poem for the very first time when, right before we started this episode. So uh, and, and read is literally read aloud, did not process. So um, so that that's kind of the way that the story goes inside of the poem. Now, where this relates is the way that I perceive this poem. And given that Pierce has an affinity for Rudyard Kipling, as I've read this, I see this poem is directly influencing the conversation between Adrius and his sister, Virginia. So we can extract those terms a little bit and think about it as the society versus the Republic, which is sort of the larger conversation of this trilogy. So the society was overthrown at the end of the original trilogy in, in some way, shapes and form. They are the King. They're this sort of pervasive force, right? That we thought were defeated in the initial triumph, the initial fight that the Baron put against, the Republic put against. But after a conflict, we found out that actually the society was in charge versus the Republic. And so the Baron and King are made equal after the second stanza. So we we come to realize that despite the sort of respect that they hold for each other and the, the respect that they hold for iron, the King or the society holds more iron over the republic or the baron and so adrius is this influence inside of this conversation that's why he brings it up and that's why he uses iron as the sort of nascent metal that he can he can loom over people it's only further extended when you consider the fact that golds are are the top of the food chain but really the top of the food chain is peerless guard and then the people that are considered above peerless guard are iron golds those ones that truly emphasize the culture in a very strong way right so if we if we take that down just keep that in the back of your head as we're thinking about this mm-hmm. it's a bit okay. of a rant here at this point so <laughs> as we start to we think about the end of the poem the baron is 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 losing against the king and is losing his influence inside of court and so he eventually is subsumed by by the master the iron master of all which is the jackal in this case, finally overtaking the uh, sort of nascent leadership that was the 
And so you, you start to see this kind of among the poem compared to the story, you see kind of the rise and fall of the Republic versus the society. And that's what I think Abominadrius is intentionally trying to influence or reference through his constant use of iron in the Iron Wolf, in the Iron Crown, in the Iron Axis, especially given the other references to Riyard Kipling inside of this. I, I can't imagine that Pierce wasn't thinking about this when he wrote this. And and the references to God and, and him being a God of some sort, him him evoking the idea that he is a messiah and he is a god of some sort kind of go hand in hand so i i think that i think that i i can't imagine it's not intentional i totally agree and so that's that's my entire brain concept here and this is as mentioned a bit of a rant but as i was reading this section i just felt as i continued through it you could just see these threads of thought that spread out from that poem from Cold Iron by Rudyard Kipling. It just feels like the more that we think about it, uh, like Baron, the, the Baron says, mock not my fall for iron, cold iron is master of men all. And he, he's saying that regardless, like if you, if you think about iron, iron is power. And regardless of whether or not you could even, you could even extract this and think about like Virginia and Abominadrius in this moment, wherein Abominadrius is wielding the power over top of Virginia and Virginia is like throwing her arms up and being like, yep, you're right. And then in the, in the previous scene, she's able to reverse the iron. She's able to reverse the power and kind of spin that back on him because she has a better understanding than the Baron did at the time. There are just so many different interpretations that fit this full poem that this is the first full poem that I felt like reading on the podcast because there's just such a clear connection here in my head. Then again, Mm -hmm. I might be crazy. No, no. I think it makes sense. With that, we move on to chapter 56, Virginia, a maze with no center. So I I couldn't help but like look this up and like my brain for some reason immediately thought like, oh, this is like a Westworld quote. This is I, I remember this like maze concept being really big. I was then revisited by something that actually we talked about all the way back in Golden Sun, which is G.K. Chesterton. If you had a quote way back when it wasn't the same quote, it was a similar quote, though, about kind of the the sort of paradox of of life and i i think at the time it was loneliness uh that was that was talked about in golden sun but the quote here of course from gk chesterton that's kind of being referenced maybe being referenced is what we all dread most is a maze with no center kind of centering that conversation of an endless insolvable problem so yeah centering which is kind of funny yeah yeah no i mentioned it before yeah this is this is the quote that kind of solidifies my connection between um, uh, Lilith and the Red Queen because the Red Queen and her palace is surrounded by hedge mazes, which would make her the center of the maze, which, you know, is ironic, but at least there's mazes, right? (laughs) The the mazes, the mazes fit. And that's, you know, that's what matters (laughs) most of all. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that there is a, a context that exists there. I was just trying to like, I was, I was trying to dig it a little bit more. And obviously there's, there's a conversation that happens here, which is that this entire thing is about a puzzle that the Jackal is never going to be able to solve because it's really a game against him. Right. So it's a maze that he, that is with no center because he's never going to find his way out or even to the middle of the maze so that he can 
backwards engineer the solution trying to head the other direction because he understands the turns that he took to get into it. So there, there's no way for the jackal to get out of this maze once he enters it, once this chapter begins. Right. But the yeah. site's... The sights we're given off the bat of this chapter are absolutely horrifying. There's the cannibalistic battle set to happen amid, amid the stars as the fleets start to fight each other. Uh, the Republic feeds the ecliptic guard, the Telemannus fleet, and the Vox fleet, I believe, are the, the three groups. Uh, the Bone Riders, of mm-hmm. course, are partying among a, a dr- mountain of drugs as well as the reaper's whiskey which of course they're drinking a lot of and Britannia ag craig is killed as a kind of like a drunken party gag of sorts it's almost like they're playing like pin the tail on the donkey in sort of a nonchalant way and murdering the silver that we previously saw uh in the scene which virginia shot the statue of quicksilver so there's there's a lot here that kind of accounts for I don't know, like a lot of craziness that uh, sort of loose, loosed cuffs that happen here. You didn't even mention the generations old bottles of wine that they're drinking. <laughs> like it's Good candy. Um, Good with point. that, though, I think we have to drink here based on our rules that we set up for the show. That is true. Anytime whiskey's mentioned. <laughs> yep. We're drinking in general. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. I'm just glad we didn't set any rules for, uh, for drugs. Death? No, drugs. Drugs would also be bad. <laughs> we're nerds, guys. Truth we're, be told. We're very much like I wouldn't say straight edge, but pure sheltered. Not- <laughs> pure sheltered nerds. <laughs> say okay. We're like yep. a nerd's rope that never got out of its package. Mm. You're taking the we're taking stretchy the too far. Elastic. <laughs> 12 inches long. (laughs) Oh, wait. (laughs) Sorry, I was going in a different direction. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) Lilaf, dude, like, uh, there's so much to talk about here now. Like, she's... We talked about the, the, like, Alice in Wonderland thing, and, like, maybe... Maybe we were aggressive, but she's clearly a pawn, regardless of what the society thinks or the society remnant thinks. What do you make of her, like, um, whole situation with being in love with a child that she birthed and breastfed and, uh, like, took care of and, um, you know, all of the rest of the obvious complexity that comes with her, like, being around the jackal? (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's a lot of complexity to this. There, there's also the fact that like a few pages later, when the jackal's asking about like where the puzzles are, and she's just kind of like, ah, she's getting dressed down verbally, and uh, Pierce uses the term spanked, like the the ten year old spanks Lilith, and I don't think it's <laughs> meant to be a physical thing. <laughs> I think I think it's a, a verbal spanking, but you can imagine the uh, physical, right? Like but, you can. Oh God! Like if it wasn't a ten-year-old, <laughs> I think it'd be kind of funny. But it's a ten-year-old, so it's less funny. I think it's extra funny because it's a ten-year-old, like a ten-year-old spanking well, no, just an adult. The, the, the sexual aspect of it, it, it puts it in a weird, creepy space. It's terrible. <laughs> Um, but 
it's pretty funny. But now we've got Lilith, Bone Rider, horrifying visage, pedophile. So it's kind of okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And that makes sense. Or like, worse. I mean, it, it's worse, but it it makes her less scary and more creepy. You know? Like, it, it shifts yeah. her. Not in a way that makes her better or worse. It makes her worse. Let's be let's be perfectly upfront here. It makes her worse. <laughs> it does, but make it makes her, worse. her less terrifying. Like it just makes her it makes her desperate and uh, just pathetic, and also a pedophile. <laughs> I, I think in in every case here, I think you're totally correct. I think that it makes her pedophilic in a weird way. I think that it's impossible to try to have kind of a larger discussion. Even like there's just something strange there's it's impossible to have. And like Mustang is even like, OK, she's in love with the dude from before, but also she breastfed, birthed, like fucking has done everything, raised, potty trained, like has done everything for this dude. And I just how do you not how are you not able to break that energy? <laughs> and also he has power over you as a fucking 10 year old. Like what? 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 There. Uh, he said weird sexual energy from from Lilith. Very creepy. What the fuck? Yep, exactly. It's it's fucky without a doubt. So we say fucky a lot. We don't say it so much anymore. But the <laughs> the the moment I think that happens after this with the puzzles is one that has been remembered fondly by Mustang over the course uh, over the course of this book and over the course of years as she's reflected on the loss of her brother and. I, I think that before we had kind of highlighted the sort of love that she held for these moments of childhood and sort of the, the grandeur that she remembered them in because they weren't surrounded by the trauma of her father that she was trying to ignore and that she was able to kind of marble out of her brain. And these were these were moments, these were rare moments where she actually got to spend with her brother and remembering his sort of fondness. But uh, again, deeper into the story, his sort of aggression that came with his need to win, which I, th- I I think is interesting. I think that we also see an excellent point made here where she gets to return to these kind of familiar, even kind of fun games with this clone of her brother and getting back to the remarks of her father and parentage. She she remarks, I would have given fingers off my hand for my twin to sigh like that when we were children all my life. I think my brother broken. He wasn't. Perhaps he was just born with an incompatible father. And I think this brings up a really good point that that like nature versus nurture is especially important here as we consider Abominadrius and sort of his situation. I don't know. It, it gets very complicated. What do you make of kind of the scene? At a certain point, she explains how she handled it different differently than Adrius did and basically says that she gave up trying to get Nero to love her and Adrius never did. And that's kind of where that twist happens and where, where he becomes who he becomes in the future. At the same time, this scene is weirdly touching and it, it makes the inherent child within Adrius shine to a certain extent. There's this open, honest conversation that they have together about their family and about what happened to Adrius and it, feelings wise, it really caught me off guard strangely. And I, I, I wasn't prepared for it. That said, as far as the nature versus nurture thing goes, 
it feels like it's entirely nurture because any of the problems and, and differences between um, the abomination and the original Adrius Mustang seems to attribute to Lilith intentionally redacting memories and thoughts. Um, I, I guess, I guess, I guess clones don't necessarily follow nature versus nurture though, do they? So that's maybe a moot argument. I think actually, interestingly enough, I think that clones are a more pure example of nature versus nurture because you can take the original, right? Like you've got the original copy that goes throughout life and then you've got the clone, which is going throughout perhaps without the nurture aspect with perhaps without the parentage. Um, but I, I think that that varies highly. There's no good way of, of measuring that. But I think that this poses an interesting conversation, which I think you're mm. you're trying to dig into, especially kind of feelings wise as they compare to each other. Obviously, Abominadrius shows far more emotional regard for people that he doesn't even know than Adrius did. Like he holds Mustang in very high regard strictly because of stories that he's been told over the last 10 years. So, yeah. Well, be, because because of what was redacted from him, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Spe- specifically, the puzzles. The puzzles are a mm. a really interesting point in their relationship, and the fact that Lilith redacted those memories from him inadvertently gave him more compassion. For everything. When, yeah, when he found out that they were real, right? Like, when he found out that he was lied to, that's when it kind of changed more dramatically. Well, it, it wasn't even necessarily that he was lied to. It was that he didn't feel anger towards Mustang for uh, for always solving the puzzles. And the fact that he never, never once beat her with them. And it, it seems like him not knowing that made him less jaded. Somehow. I, I don't even think it's like somehow. I think it's just it, it encourages curiosity, right? Like it, it it drove it out of him to be more curious about these things because he doesn't have a full picture of his childhood, right? As you yeah. mentioned, yeah, that's Lilith right. is obviously redacted part, parts of his childhood. So it's encouraging his curiosity being like, oh, I could know more about myself. I could know more about the person that I'm trying to imitate being as opposed to being myself. That's what's so fascinating to me about this is that like Lilith is is raising him to be the ideal of the jackal that she holds in her head, not the real jackal that was, you know, like she's uh, this. This is a question that I think is posed a little bit later, but there's this question of is he a leader or is he a prophet that's kind of posed as the bone riders are looking at Lilath and and sort of the the situation is like they're all trying to step into second in command, and we we kind of get this conversation that happens between the Adrius that's in front of us and the Adrius who's died. But I, I guess like what do you think of the bone riders in Lilath and what that conversation looks like, or, and what do you think of kind of the plan and like have they bought in on the faith that they have behind? The old Adrius is it is it about Adrius as a whole is this sort of I think it's a stretch to call him like a religious entity by any means, but at the very least like a. a so from that point where you you quoted like is is he a leader or is he a prophet up until that point, I my primary thought was that Darrow had brought this upon everybody by letting people out of deep grave. 
to kind of hide his intentions when mm. he was taking out Apple. But based on what's said, it seems uh, it seems that they were let out by Adrius to kind of fulfill a prophecy that made him seem kind of godly by like letting him out 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Virginia is just kind of positing that, isn't she? That's not coming from, that's not coming from them. So it's still possible that Darrow let out the three original bone riders, isn't it? Who's all, who was, who all was in deep grave? And did Darrow kill everybody that he took out? So all the folks that were in Deep Grave that were liberated were people that were uh, around the Minotaur. So it was made to look as though the Minotaur made it out, not that these folks did. So it was never it was never meant to be a moment of liberation for the Bone Riders, just for the Minotaur and his folks. So these were all people of Mercury, not of Mars, which we know from earlier on. These are all Martians or people that were at the Institute, the Martian Institute. Okay. So, so there was a different breakout. Correct. It must have been a silent one. Yeah. Is, is okay. the implication. Because okay. that's that's something that's been bouncing around in my head for a while. Yeah. And right. the, the thing that like got me to stop thinking that was this comment. And I'm realizing now that it was Mustang that said it in her own head. Yeah. I mean, there. this goes back to... The comparison between Darrow and the Jackal and how similar they are. Darrow's referred to by a lot of people, adversaries and allies alike, as a living god. Like We, we talk about his sort of messiah complex, not complex, but his messiah themes every once in a while. We bring mm-hmm. that up. We just evoked uh, the Iron... What what's it called? Cold iron. Cold iron. Yep. Clearly, like that. If that's not a straight up call to him being a messiah, I don't know what is. Like they're very similar and completely separate side, like opposite sides of the spectrum. But they are very similar, and it's really interesting to see these things like clash. Love that you love that. I I don't know how else to explain that. I'm so excited that you are that you're passionate about these same things because I. I see those same kind of like moral conflicts between obviously we 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 really saw them in um, in the original trilogy between Atreus and the Jackal. But now it's it's become even more prevalent as there's this idea of the clone and the sort of like backfeeding of of information through the pipeline where it's like, OK, Atreus thought about this. And so it's it's a machination of his own. And as we think about the Baron versus the king, like who's the Baron, who's the king, who's jockeying for position versus who's in charge and that shifts over the course of the story. Oh boy. Speaking of, <laughs> Adrius mentions, Abomin Adrius mentions something. Uh, he says, Did you use the White Guilds to start a war? And PJ, my question for you among that entire paragraph of quotes that mentions a number of other things that he could be involved in, what does he mean by that specific about the White Guilds? PJ, what could Abomin Adrius ever assume to have inferred by starting a war? With the white guilds xenophon yeah xenophon um we talk about the white guilds and their connection to the syndicate in iron gold quite a bit from ephraim and xenophon and lysander is, actually is it from lysander as well yes it is okay. both okay dido um, specifically with the ophian guild yes yep 
Uh, but we don't necessarily know that they're connected to the same thing, right? That's well, a, a different white guild, right? So we know that the Ophian guild is connected with Dido is connected via the dude who is given the sword of Selenius. God, I cannot remember his name. The white that is given the sword of Selenius uh, from Ephraim. So there's a white. Oh, God. Do you, you, you remember who I'm talking about, though? Yeah. Can, continue on your point and I'll figure out the name. No, that makes total sense because Adrius has the sort of Selenius. Correct. Yeah, he wields that over top of everyone else. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that doesn't discount what you're saying. Like, I, I'm not... I'm just well, saying... Well, I mean, we we started a war uh, through through no, like, small act by Xenophon. He, he had a large role in the leadership of the All Tribe and them making decisions that are effectively starting a war between the All Tribe and the Republic, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's all I can think of as far as using the White Guilds to start a war. My other thought here is that could the White Guilds have also been an influence, given what we were just talking about with uh, the Rim and the Ophian Guild, they also influenced the Rim to join the Corps' War. So is that a machination as well of... But that's not starting a war. That's joining a war. Okay, fair. Fair. But it... Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair. And, I mean, we... we with the... The juxtaposition of these comments and what's been going on in the story when the only war that's been recently and recently as in, like, um, um, comparatively recently started is the self-liberation of the obsidians. And there is a very high-ranking official within that leadership that is part of a white guild. Yep. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's all I can think. It's tough to deny the, the facts that you're saying, and I, I guess, like, my, my quandaries that happen, um, or my quandaries, the questions that my brain poses are, are more around these sort of rims involvement, and part of this is because the rim has been so removed from the conversation for most of this book, outside of a couple of different moments yeah. that have been mentioned. Um, one, the man from the rim coming to the core, passing on the information that the rim was going to war, the reference uh, of, of course, Serafina dying, Diomedes at the very beginning, talking with Atalantia and then relaying the information back and heading back to communicate uh, while Serafina went to war before she was blown to bits. You know, like those are those are our moments of the rim in this story so far. So yeah. I don't know. There's a lot floating out there in the distance that we don't I quite have answered they'll, yet. They'll all be relevant very soon. <laughs> I don't think that's what this is talking about. So in Mustang's office, Abominadrius works out his origins a, a little bit more clearly for Mustang, explaining how he was attended to, how he was taken care of, the messages he was given, how he was treating, how he kind of like treated helping Lilath run the syndicate like a puzzle as he's treated a lot of the other kind of games and kind of sort them out. He's gamifying life and war among gangs. Um mm-hmm. But I, I found, in particular, his parable of the cow in the slaughterhouse are, are what, like, really haunt me from this section. That belief that his intellect could make him so superior that anyone beneath that level deserved sacrifice, deserved death. 
Mustang points out, of course, that this is a false equivalency as she compares Abominadrius to his brothers, his brother, I think, or twin brother, clone. <laughs> However, there, there's so many fucked up ways to describe this situation. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. I think in hopes to drive at the better version uh, that she could create of her brother right here, right now, and that she believes that could exist inside of this clone, that she could push abominadrius to be better than this adrius that we we saw in the previous trilogy all that say do you think there's a world in which this clone could thrive and be happy unlike adrius i think that entirely depends on whether or not what has been seeded in him as far as memories and thoughts and emotions and who he is goes is what made him unhappy in the first place sure it, it it's interesting to think about how these clones work because we don't have a whole lot of it like understanding now we know that or we we can kind of assume based on the conversations that Lilith is able to redact memories but we don't necessarily know how he's consuming those memories other than the fact that he mentioned that he was watching institute hollow camps hollow vids I think the biggest thing is going to be if we want to try to make him happy and if there's a way to do that, I think the way to do that is to introduce him to a different father figure and and foster a father-son relationship that's actually healthy. I think that's the only way to really make him, I don't know about happy, but at peace, I guess. I agree with you i i think that you are you are so on to this character that i cannot that's fine um there there is the conversation right around here uh just to continue so you don't have to have to respond there's the conversation about cows and slaughterhouses yep right um i feel like a very similar conversation happened also earlier um also in like in golden sun i think yeah also in golden sun between darrow and the jackal during that heist at the jackal's office i i think is that true like do you remember that i don't remember it in such explicit terms but i do remember there being a similar conversation of course as, as their like own superiority i feel like it's surrounding the I feel like it's surrounding the gold or the the pink that comes out and he gives her the gun and tells her to shoot him. Do you remember that that part? They might be. They might be mixing in mind too. I think I brought this I I brought that scene up earlier and I don't think I meant to. I think I was I was thinking about this moment. For whatever reason, I feel like I remember Adrius talking about cows and intelligence and slaughterhouses. No, I I and this feels like a a callback to that totally agree with you i think that it is a i think that it is kind of in a way like a callback especially regardless in the way that like adris has treated humans the entire time which is a, a means to an end like even in the institute he he thought about people in a similar way and i i i question whether or not again that's a nature versus nurture conversation but i still agree with you i feel like the parables are similar here so the the final moment of this chapter is Virginia's speech about what Adrius would do, and I think that it's fantastic. It's evocative, and it's just enough to push his buttons and push him 
far enough into falling into her trap. She decides to spring it, though, completely understanding the consequences that Clown, Pebble, and several will likely all die, but for the chance of the Republic's survival. This is more important to her, the, the society of billions, of course, and what they've fought for over the course of the last decade. She says, I made the same choice my husband had to make, and that is obviously an evocative situation of the Darrow, situation that Darrow was in against the Wardens with an iron gold. What do you make of the sort of entire read of what she has to do going into the next scene here? Well, um, so it's, I think she's right. It's evocative of that. But at the same time, that same scene that she's talking about was mentioned last chapter from Publius saying that like Darrow dispatching of Wolfgar is what put the wardens into position to like be ready for a, like for a, a move like this. So evoking that isn't necessarily a great thing for her in the long run. Like th- this is going yeah. to, if we're, if we're following that sort of path, this is going to have unintended consequences in the negative later on. And I, I think that's beyond just losing, losing the three original howlers. I think it it's going to have something more overarching and political and some sort of mark upon her person as a result of this decision. Even though I think it's the right decision to make. I think it's it's a tragic horrible decision to have to make, but I think it's the right one. Can't help but agree with you, right? And this is where she even like later measures her consideration of herself. Versus, like Virginia versus Mustang, like the person who stands up for her friends versus the person who chooses to do what's right for society. And I think that's also the comparison that Darrow makes when he unfortunately has to kill Wolfgar. And as he thinks about it often, and it it's just it's it's a tough, tough pill to swallow in a lot of ways. And here she is totally doing the right thing. Totally. Like, I, I don't I don't. I don't disagree with her decision in the slightest, um, but just the fact that that sort of comparison comes up. Yeah, I could not agree more. Really curious about what negative consequences. I agree with that holistically. So with that, we move into chapter 57, our final Virginia chapter of the week. Not the last chapter, but our final Virginia chapter. So... At the end of the last chapter, the trap of the night lily has sprung something that was planted long ago. Virginia is able to escape her office after being struck by Lilath with a hatchet to both her arms and one stuck in her back. She has to cut her fingers off with a cauterizing laser and seals the wounds on her back and her arms as best as she can with a cauterization gun. It's kind of a brutal moment for Virginia here, but she's able to communicate with Cavax via the Black Cathedral, emergency protocol, and relay information about what's going on inside of the Citadel. The hope may come yet to save the day, but it's not clear quite yet that we've escaped. Um, first of all, I I was so looking forward to whenever this night lily would come into play. <laughs> like, you called it out. I'm so You're happy very explicit. Did. Yeah. Did I? Yeah, you were you were very pro. You're like, this is going to come back. You're like, this will happen. Well, of course it was. Yeah. Of course it was going. I don't remember my predictions, folks. Like, I'll uh, I'll accept absolute, absolute 
credit on that one. <laughs> um, beyond just the the tragedy of using an emergency protocol in general, it's always nice to see Uncle Cavax. I'm right? so glad that he wasn't affected by the rest of the the sort of scourge. And obviously, they that Zan mentions him earlier and mentioned with Publius that they they were trying to like figure out information on him as she was sitting in the pandemonium chair. So there were clearly interrogations going on meant to pull that information from her mind, and she was able to cloud that via understanding this tool and understanding that it might have been used against her and going to bed dreaming and thinking about false memories which is wild for the record but Mm -hmm. being able to pull off this sort of emergency escape hatch pull and all the violence that surrounds it you know throwing like basically potentially severely damaging the clone of her brother with the night lily as well as damaging lilath a little bit in the face with it like is horrendous in in imagery is the way my brain thinks about it but i it is a chapter of fight for virginia in a very virginia way like it's it's never going to be and she is a skilled razor duelist as we know but it's never going to be the darrow razor fights you know this is her Mm -hmm. outplaying people out chessing people god i just want to see the actual damage that those night lilies do though you know like i, I want to see the physical result of it this to me is is another like section that is very visual that you can imagine easily on tv yeah absolutely even, even though it's drama like you know like it's i don't know this entire this entire section could play out over this this episode that we're covering right now is almost a perfect episode front to back of leading television your first act is with the character that we ended last week with your middle th- act two three and four are with a character in which we've abandoned for two episodes that we're finally coming back to to pick up the plot from and then your final moment is a character that we've abandoned for two episodes so you get like you've got all these different hooks like this is this is a perfect tv plot i don't know and much much like the way that we record this, um, that TV show will be three and a half hours long. <laughs> Jesus Christ, at least. Uh, so I, I do love when finally they escape kind of the, the protocol and Virginia decides that it's it's time for her to emerge. Holiday comes swooping in to save Virginia and uses all these wonderful co- code names. Reynard, of course, we know is a, is the technical name for Fox. Gray Rock for Holiday herself, the gray kind of rock that everyone leans on, and Gold Horse for Mustang. I I, I think it's a pr- pretty great way to both logically communicate the story and what's going on, as well as to logically communicate it as like war symbols. Which I it's just it's great. It's like a little nod to the horsey girl humor that we love. Yeah, I mean. I giggled at Gold Horse just thinking of Horsey Girl. But <laughs> yeah, right. Beyond that, why have the code names at all? Yeah, because true. they're not discreet. Like, <laughs> yeah, not not strictly. They're, they're not gonna fool anybody. <laughs> like, hmm, Gold Horse. Who could that be? Gold Horse. Gold like, Horse. Gold Horse. Oh, gold Horse. <laughs> just kidding. She's gold. Rides across the oh. planet. The thoroughbred of think about that more before you just uh jump into the (laughs) jump into the the song of it but yeah (laughs) like no one give me any warning that this is gonna be a song and dance number damn it (laughs) 
I just, I didn't understand the reason for the call signs because they're, they're so on the nose for who they're talking about. And fairly haphazard, um, like considering. Yeah, and, and also like, why? I, I don't, I don't really understand why they're using call signs here. It like, doesn't really make sense. Wasn't, wasn't Darrow previously referred to as Icarus, you know, like very deeply yeah. obscure you know and that that is an obscure title that can be traced back to him if they really if they really dig hard enough but it's not perfectly obvious like gold horse like <laughs> well the other who, who the fuck is gold horse if i said hey gold horse i bet the first thing you think is mustang beyond before even like reading this section gold horse is is close, but how many people really know her nickname is Mustang? Like, how many folks... I think everybody. Well, everybody... I think absolutely everybody. everybody. we know. I don't think that, like, for instance, I don't think that Lysander would ever refer to Virginia as Mustang. He would never uh, know that. And he's, he's smarter than most. I think he would most. know it. I don't think he would... I don't think he would call her that, but I think okay. he would know. Fair enough. I, I guess, like, my, my thing is, like, we, we have a weird perspective because we are in sort of these main characters' heads... So we assume yeah. gold horse means Mustang, but the only reason that you would assume Mustang is if you knew the the story of the Institute, right? Actually, yeah. before the Institute, even like you'd have to know the prelude. You'd have to know the reason that Darrow calls her Mustang. And so I, I, I don't think you need to know the reason just for a for a final point on it. Sure. I don't think you need to know the reason. Uh, you just need to know that she is called Mustang. And knowing that she's called Mustang lets you know Gold Horse is probably Mustang. But I agree with you if if that's true. If it's true that the Mustang name is only within a, a closed circle of friends, then that then that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, I think that's something we can't answer. But I think in a TV show, when I write it, would be would 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 contain it within the friend group and then would make it such where you could refer to it outside of the friend group and maybe at some point it would come up being like okay we found out like it's because you rode the horse way back when blah 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 um there there would be like methods to the madness but it doesn't feel like we've hit a point where anyone would outside of us would be able to intelligibly break down who this is when and why okay okay just to bring up another argument okay if that's the case, sure. Why not just call her Mustang as her call sign? Fair point. Yeah, <laughs> it's a meaningless argument. Uh, again, like, all of my all of my long winded arguments towards the end of episodes when I've been drinking and things are coming to a head, they're just horribly misplaced and meaningless. So I don't think that's true. I think you're doing better than I am at this point. So we are going to move on, of course, because we have to end this chapter. So there there are actually like two different things that happen here that I think are really important in inside of the last couple of pages. One is Virginia's sort of like tears and crying in her moment after all of this stressful trauma has happened to her. She's escaped, she's made it out, she's passed out, she's woken up, and she sees to her right that Diana is still alive and well. And I think that that for her is both a pleasant moment because she had previously questioned whether or not Deanna was okay, but it's also a a moment in which she gets to reflect 
and be okay with those survivors and gets to think about the pain and all the people that she's actually lost over the last couple of days. And that is a that is sort of a realization not only for Virginia, but also for us over the characters that we've lost over like the last two and a half weeks, three weeks. Right. Like we've mm-hmm. lost so many core characters or like characters that we enjoyed or liked over the last couple of weeks. So, yeah. I mean, we, we asked the question of the week a, co- a couple weeks ago about like moments of rest. And this isn't necessarily a moment of rest, but it can kind of be seen that way. Like it's, it's respite from the horrors and just the brutality and pain that she's been facing. I think it makes sense that she breaks down a little bit, just reflects and takes note of the, the positives in her life at the moment. Yeah. And it is it is a very tough place to be in for the group of them. For Virginia, worst of all, because I think that unlike a couple of our other characters that we're following, she has stakes in so many different pies that are ongoing. Like she's got so much committed to so many different decisions, which is also why I love her perspective. But like, oof, it's just it's a it's a tough place to be in to have lost this many people and to understand the hardship of also like lost a position. She's she is still the sovereign of the republic, but the republic as it stands for the most part doesn't recognize her. Like maybe Mars does, but Luna doesn't right now. We don't know about Earth. Man, of right. the 3, like Yeah. Um yeah, that's not not a great place to be in at the moment, you know? Not a good position. I the the thing that I would say here is that the chapter ends with a meeting with Sovereign, one with Cavax, Niobe, and Holiday, all conferring updates and deciding whether to aid Darrow to save Severo or defend Mars. There are four operatives left, of course, back on Luna, searching for Severo, potentially working to rescue him, Clown, and Pebble. And there has also been information delivered to them about the core rim alliance by a man whom was sent to mercury to rescue darrow should they fail to escape who do you think that is what do you think about that information that we're given i mean i think it's gil rosties mm-hmm. gil rastes gil- how do you pronounce i it? think gil rosties is also how i think of it so we'll not yeah, disagree in my head it's always gil rosties yeah um i don't know what the audiobook says i can't remember fair point but that's kind of a meta answer sure. because of like drama and tension building in TV shows and movies and stuff where they like mention vaguely that someone's doing something. Sure. Someone's someone's in position for something and then they cut to that person, but they don't tell you that that person is what's up, you know, or what the previous thing is talking about. And similarly, I don't know if I'm describing this well enough or in a concise way that you guys are able to follow me, but Kavak says that he's got somebody ready to go. And then the first line, the first sentence of the next chapter is go Rosties. Like it just, it feels like that sort of scene in a movie or TV show where the creators and writers and directors and everything are nodding to the audience and saying like, Hey, here, here's who we're talking about. But shh, the, the characters don't know <laughs> dramatic irony. Um, yeah, exactly. Based on that. My only thought is Gil Rostis is that guy. Cool. Well, dude, here is our final chapter of the week. We're going to be talking about chapter 58 Darrow Severo's palace. 
And this is the last of our longest episodes. Everything under uh, everything after this week is under 60 pages. So we are approaching a point where obviously this is going to be our longest episode in a while. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Just thinking about this and I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is a we're on the decline in a way. I don't know. (laughs) It's just it's a weird (laughs) part of my soul right now. So finally, we are back around to Darrow and Mastermaker Gil Rostes, as you said. The orange here, Gil Rostes, with his 14 fingers and hundreds of workers among his puzzles and everything else, has constructed something that might actually just help Darrow out of his bind. An absolutely massive EMP. I love how Darrow gets him to explain it by insulting him. Like, the whole scene, like, he's like, no, I'm not going to tell this to the fucking layman. Like, what do you, what, I'm not, I'm not in charge of that. And so instead, like, Darrow decides to insult him so that he would have to explain it to Darrow, thinking him the lowest common denominator in the room. What did you think of his explanation and the general demeanor in this sort of environment around Gil Rostis and Darrow? Oh, man. I loved the way that this was just like the way he described the the different pressure waves and the uh, electromagnetic waves that were coming off and the way that it could be modeled mathematically. So well done. So cool. Really cool to visualize. I like this guy and I genuinely hope that he's Cavex's inside man. I think it makes sense because he seems pretty well versed in the telemonesis. When he's sure. talking to Thraxa. Yeah. And he he's like gushing over how her brother was a genius and how her father is amazing. I can't remember exactly what he says. He seems well connected to the Telemonuses on a personal level. And I don't know. That all comes about after she like offers to give him a foot massage. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, that fact alone that he's so defensive and knowledgeable about the telemonuses, um, makes me really think that he's, he's who Cavex is talking about. Sure. Sure. Love that. Really, really kind of dig that explanation. I think that you've got a good line in without me being too raffo about the whole thing. Did you like that? You should have used that earlier when you had the opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to keep digging into you with that one. So Fair enough. I do, though, it, per, per what you're saying, I love Thraxa, Darrow, and Harnassus' is kind of like back and forth that happens about Gilrastes and his sardines. It's it's a mode of levity that is so needed. Uh, oh, Gilrastes and wanting to eat sardines, not Correct. Severo's sardines. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, 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 yeah wanting yeah. to eat sardines. Correct. Uh, but but this this moment of levity is so needed after the sort of like brutal conversation that we've just had over the last fucking three and a half hours about Virginia and her issues like this is is a moment of levity after all of the death and destruction and nurture versus nature and all the other sort of brutality that we've talked about. Is there any particular favorite moment or joke that you have about Gil Rastis? Oh man, what what page is this on? I've got to look. It's around. I've got, like got four ninety. I've got jokes and like favorite lines about Severo, but about Gil Rostis. Four ninety two. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about Severo in a second. He's pig headed, cruel, eccentric, fickle, and ten times more demanding as my first wife. 
but he's a genius. <laughs> and I, I think that almost the response from Thraxa being like kind of cold to that is wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, she, she says, uh, oh, was was but riches made him slow yeah but she she replies at length like after she's posited for a little like a little bit more she says first off his designs are rubbish robbing the egyptians blind and the bastard cozied up to slavers then to us he's a blood fly invertebrate permission to pop him when we evac and then Arnassus replies, denied psycho. <laughs> like, why the fuck would you kill that dude? It's like, it's just like such a short moment. And it's it, it starts to emphasize the like conflict that happens just in this. It's not it's not a big conflict, but it's like a moment where it's like, no, fuck it. Like, should we kill this guy? No. Yes. No. Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> and that's the way the conversation goes. Yep, pretty much. Which is <laughs> it's great. It's a it's a funny moment for sure. Of course, we get another funny moment as Darrow tries to solve the problem on his own of trying to kill kill Rastis, his sardines. Darrow is trying to solve the problem by going to Severo's room to find sardines because the dude smells like fish, apparently, (laughs) and would probably have sardines in his room. So... At first, he's blasted with needles, and Yellow has to help him out as his, like, skin that's punctured by the needles is permanently turned purple. (laughs) But... There's just so much here that happens. Um, he's he's able to get up, prick his finger, and is greeted by a series of compliments and instructions about his stay in Severo's palace. Both Rona and Screwface refuse to go fucking in because they just saw... <laughs> they refused before that. They did. They like, definitely refused before that, but, like, extra, they're like... Like, Screwface is like, I'll stand outside. I'm not going in. Rona's like, fuck yeah. that. <laughs> Which is, it's just good. Yeah. It is everything I expected of Severo's home. Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected anything less. Genuinely, I'm surprised it's as clean as it is. Could not agree more. It's it's actually shocking, even with like the wrappers squeezed into like some people's like eye eye sockets and everything else for like candy and stuff like that. Like it is across like half a dozen rooms, six rooms. It is shocking how clean it is, despite, like, you'd expect it to be filthy based on some of our other mm-hmm. descriptions of Severo, but it's yeah. willing to admit that he grew up a little bit as an adult, regardless of family, and then family took him a level higher than even that. So I think that there's a lot here after Dara finally makes it into the room as the apex asshole, the, the second in command. <laughs> And everything like that. (laughs) The fucking monitor lays to him. (laughs) Uh, But Mm. in the rooms themselves, there are all kinds of prizes and treats to be won or consumed. But in the weapon room, there's far more of that. Uh, Darrow even reflects on a conversation with Virginia, which is to say that the room you keep cleanest is the one that most reflects your personality. And the one that most reflects Darrow's personality is not a room, but she just points directly to his razor and it's any room he's in with his razor. Right. So there's that whole aspect, but Darrow pulls that memory forth and, and tries to extrapolate it into Severo's perspective. And he sees a number of things. He sees a shrine of knives among suits of armor. He sees weapons won and given from previous enemies, including the Minotaur. He sees a third wall, and the third wall is the most important. It's one of memories topped with the sling blade from the Institute that Darrow had used previously that he'd fought hard to make sure that he, 
he held onto that artifact and that sort of final wall that third wall is wall of his family there's floating holograms of the girls dancing around and victra and everything like that their family existing together there's the emerald cape that was given to him before they invaded earth and there's a golden unicorn figurine, which is a wonderful callback to <laughs> the early, early golden sun with the like unicorn porn jokes. <laughs> yeah. Was that golden sun? It was golden or was sun. was that red rising? It was golden that sun. That was golden sun. Yep. 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 When, when he was out in Pluto. Um, yep. But then the final note, of course, is one that is of extreme importance. And I think the whole thing is obviously measuring in his family. But the, the final note on this whole thing is the bloody red helmet of Ares from his father, which is something that is so easy to forget when you think about Severo, because Fitchner was almost so removed as a father figure. You know, I, I think that that is that final, that third wall and all the other walls are very strong of his personality and the way that he ranks things and thinks about things as he moves through life. I thought this entire scene was beautiful. Mm hmm. I thought it really encapsulated what the the character that Severo has been throughout this entire book so far. More than anything else, like I, I think this is so in line with what we've seen from him so far. Just really being driven by and um his entire world revolves around his family. And that has not faltered at all as far as motivations go. That has been absolutely true the entire time. <sighs> yeah, he's been more truthful than a lot of other characters are to their personalities. And this is just sort of the exhibition of that moment, right? In a lot of ways. And Dara is finally being able to like take that in and consciously consider these sort of thoughts for the first time in his entire life. So... It's very stirring. He takes all the sin, of course, and reflects on his own errors, the same that Fitchner's made, the impossibility of tackling the duties of being a father and a leader separately. And Severo, of course, had an understanding of that. He, at a core level, understood that you could not be a warlord and be a parent at the same time because of the way that he was raised. And so he chose to fight against that curve and go the other way, which is why he chose to go back to Luna to save his kid that was being abducted versus continuing forward with Darrow. So th there's this sort of interesting juxtaposition between their perspectives that we've, we've heard, of course, for the last book. But Darrow actually really comes around and embraces this idea and finally fucking understands it when he, when he understands the importance that can be placed upon family and the Republic, like separating those lives was perhaps Darrow's biggest mistake. Separating this, this, these two sides of his personality was just massive for him. And mm -hmm. I think this is the section. This is the chapter in which Darrow really embraces the idea that he can maybe beat the fantasy chapter seven of iron gold. And he can finally like that. He's posited so long ago and he can see his wife and boy again. He can like build that life up in the way that he wants to if he can somehow come around and join these parts of his life together in the same way that Severo has. And he it, it took this moment of deep realization from his best friend to kind of turn this emotionally otherwise irrelevant corner, not irrelevant, but irrespondent corner to him. So mm -hmm. it's it's a tough moment, it, but it's a hard 
and great moment of realization for him. Yeah. And I think we've kind of seen him talk about Pax and talk about his family and, and say that things are going to get better. But I think, I think this moment of really seeing the way that Severo absolutely worships his family in his private time is more than anything going to prompt Darrow to actually put forward more of an effort than he has been in the past. So, yeah, I think I think seeing this wall in this room from Severo is pivotal. Yeah, there there's always the question of is it like too little too late, you know? Absolutely, it can be. And I think it probably is. Hmm. Um but at least they're all all alive at this point, so yeah. you know, they can heal together. Fair. Fair enough. And with that, we end the week, PJ. That's that's the episode's end. Thank God we made it. We've arrived. So with that, PJ's predictions for the next week have been provided by me because mm-hmm. I was a week off on when I thought other people's predictions were coming in. So I delivered for you some questions for the first time in a while. So we'll lead off. Who's the inside man that Capex sends? You believe it is? Gilrastis. Okay. Gilrastis, man. Gilrastis, man. We talked about it ad nauseum, so we'll, we'll just move on from there. Yep. What do you think will become of Severo? Um, I think he'll be broken. Incredibly broken. I don't think he'll be entirely mind wiped because I don't think they'll have figured out how to do that. Yeah, right. Um, but they will absolutely fuck with him with the mind spike as much as they can. Okay. All right. Final question. Both Lysander and Darrow remain on Mercury. What happens to both of them from there? I think they their paths collide. I think Darrow somehow learns of Alexander's location, learns that he's alive, and comes to rescue him, and inadvertently also rescues Lysander. Okay. Cool, man. With that, from PJ's predictions, we move on into question of the week. This is an interesting one because we actually only had it out for today. So they're actually, we are mostly fielding people who responded very quickly. And I apologize if you actually get in from the point that we publish this to the next episode, I will try to include your response in the response in the next episode, just so you know. So if you decide to respond... Keep us posted. We will definitely try to share your answer. Yes. To start off, though, the question of last week was, what's your favorite horrific character and why? So. Creature. (laughs) To to start it off here, the first answer is from Dylan on Instagram. The macroverse shapeshifter that commonly takes shape as Pennywise, the dancing clown. She is my favorite because she is literally fear herself. And personally, I couldn't agree more. I think that this is a wonderful rendition, and I'm definitely going to talk about it later. <laughs> so, yeah. myself. Um, so, I am going with the not folded. From Big Hank Ross on Instagram. So many good choices, but John Carpenter's The Thing is terrifying. Not just... Not just its evolving grotesque nature, but the fact that it can indistinguishably mimic anyone. Pretty fucking terrifying. Yeah. Good man. choice. Good answer. That was a consideration for mine as well. 
Agreed. The the fact like some of these answers totally stole stole them out from under me, so I definitely understand sort of the responses. And I have an answer that I'm unwilling to share, but we'll talk about it later. So with that mm. from Sistormzand on Instagram, the protomolecule in the expanse. It's an infectious body sludge and hive mind. And I can't help but fucking agree. It is a like first book, second book antagonist but isn't an antagonist it's really just a force of nature behind the thing pj if there is a series that i wish that we could cover but we'll just simply take too much time it's probably the expanse uh of which i would either recommend that you read or watch because both are worthy experiences and i think that you enjoyed the shit out of it so i will stand by storm zan's opinion on the proto molecule because it's right away at the beginning of the expanse it's an expanse it's not that big of a, a uh spoiler so i think you'll you'll dig it all right good to know sweet um we've got ivana on our patreon discord cthulhu and the weeping angels in doctor who the concept of the weeping angels is amazing and for cthulhu at least in the book i read is an enormous overlord mind controlling monster that you cannot beat that is a very good point I actually have a coffee mug in front of me, a big ceramic, thick, awesome. I love this coffee mug, but it's got uh, Cthulhu on the front. I love it. So from Artificer on our Patreon Discord, I'm going to have to go. He says, I'm going to have to go with the Trollic from Wheel of Time. They kill just for the fun of it and don't really fear much. And I... Trollocs also very cool. They look like fucking horned... They look like minotaurs. They look like bird dudes. They, they're like a combination of things. They're very interesting. Anyway, cheers. All right. Another Discord Patreon member, Sharkbait. Uh, 100% the Weeping Angels. That was in the same conversation as Ivana. The other option is the Gargoyle King from the third sing. Ah, the Gargoyle King from the third season of Rivend- Riverdale. Um, I haven't seen Riverdale. PJ, what is your haunting character or caricature? I think I'd have to go with the Predator of Predator fame. (laughs) 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 Just the combination of sort of supernatural abilities and technological advances and means of stalking its prey is fucking terrifying. And obviously somebody as just equipped as arnold mm. can take it down mm. nobody else could he's, he's gonna run amok if not for him so um yeah i think i think predator is probably my favorite fair what about you what's yours i i think that's a really good call so mine is within barely within it's actually two days within my normal like six month spoiler intro but there are so many reasons that i want to talk about this one Uh, A week ago, I recorded an entire podcast episode on a different podcast, uh, Chat Cemetery, about this character, this this vile creature, uh, of which doesn't come out until December. So I'm actually talking about this way ahead of time. But it's going to almost when this episode comes out, it's going to almost exactly line up with the six month expiration date. So if you haven't read Later by Stephen King, skip for like a minute. You'll be okay. I, 
fucking love the revelation that the deadlight is this like secret villain on top of the story next week we have a question we have a we have a weekly question um (laughs) what is your favorite escape that somebody has made i'm thinking like uh indiana jones gwen stefani and her song the great escape those droids that they were definitely looking for in that space opera thing. <laughs> uh, in the escape really, pod? Really. Where they didn't, de- <laughs> didn't detect humanoid life forms? No way. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> um, but seriously, anything fiction, nonfiction, uh, otherwise your own life? I don't know. Did you escape something in a great heroic way that uh, we could hear about? Let us know. Um, but any sort of escape, I feel like that falls into the theme of this episode. So it will follow. So it will follow. So next week we are going to be reading chapters 59 through 66. This is about as long of a section as this week, but I swear to God, it won't be this long of an episode. (laughs) I know what we're reading. So yeah, with that. So that's where we're going to leave you for this week. As motherfucking always, thank you, Tim <laughs> and Andrew. You guys keep our show going and uh, chugging along. You know, and... re- real quick, Andrew, last week, despite insurmountable odds, edited two episodes, published four episodes in the span of like mastered four episodes, edited two episodes, mastered four episodes in the span of three and a half hours. The dude is a fucking magician of incredible handiwork. The dude, despite all odds, made it all happen. So cheers to Andrew. Cheers to Andrew for, for reference to edit one of these episodes for me. It's about twice the length of the recorded episode. So for this, it'd be like nine hours. It's going to be nine hours. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to talk about it. This is the longest episode we've ever recorded. Yeah, this is fucking insane. So to do... I... He needs to teach me his ways. Yeah. Yeah, this is... That's that's absurd. So thank you, Andrew, for everything that you do. I know you had a really, really tough week. So you can check out all the links to our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, website, socials, all in one spot on the show notes for the show. Yeah, and I, you know, like there's just so much that you can check out, of course, on our Patreon, as we were talking about, like Andrew, he obviously contributes to a number of our shows. He's he's our master. Tim and I also have talked at length about a number of different topics. Uh, This next month, we've got an episode coming out on Doom and our theory on bad game design and how it relates to Doom Eternal. Uh, We've also got the episode coming out from Andrew and I relating to Blink-22 and their career and impact on pop music and music in general. And then PJ and I, instead of our Patreon, also have an episode coming out on Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog this month. So... Most of those have already been recorded and or planned. We'll be coming out soon. That's our goal with the Patreon for this month. So if you're interested, please subscribe. 
next month in October. Keep in mind, we have a number of things planned. Some of them will be Patreon exclusive. Please join us. Also, by the time that you're hearing this, we'll have a new giveaway going on Instagram for a PB Doodles print of Severo. It's incredible. It looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. It is. So fucking cute. It is so, so cool. gorgeous. We sent it out to all of our guests um, so far that have that have been on the show and one upcoming. Uh, it is an incredible Severo print. It is currently sold out. There were only, I think, roughly 150 of them made in total. And we are giving away one of the very original prints on our Instagram. All you have to do, like the post, tag a friend. That's it. And follow us so we can DM you if you win. So that's all that's going on with us this month. We hope that we see you next week to discuss the next section of Dark Age. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty sinister.